welcome back to uh, the season finale of Elevator Bullpen. Uh, this is a weird one. It's going to be our regular uh, season finale for every season. It is sort of a reflection and introspective look at the season as a whole, where each one of us went, went back uh, to the four previous episodes and chose a pitch of the other person that we liked enough to play with in some way, whether it's to create a sequel, a prequel, a different medium entirely, focus on one character, uh, an episode of a TV show, an issue of a comic, what have you, just expand on the other person's uh, pitch in some way. So uh, I will go ahead and say what I am pitching, and then Josh can do that uh, so that uh, we don't know what each other are pitching. Yeah, so we'll keep it a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so I am pitching an episode of Star Trek New Life. Oh, Maddie, I knew it would be. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's going to be either Star Trek or Star Wars. Those are the big play box fields you can play around mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. And as for me, I'm also playing in the stars, back in that galaxy far, far away. Following up on Kyle's version of Book of Boba Fett. Ah. With my Series 2 Scorched Chapter. Interesting, interesting stuff. Okay. I knew you were going to go for Star Wars. I wasn't sure yeah, which one. I may one... have spoiled it last episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, because uh, the, the, there was like this... Uh, I, I remember when uh, I was pitching Smuggler's Moon, you had such a vivid reaction. I know. It was just timing was hilarious. Yeah. Because literally a week before, I was like, hmm, I should set this series on uh, Nal, Nal Hutter and Nal Shada. That would be such a cool setting. I bet no one would have thought of that. And then you come along <laughs> basing a whole series set on that bloody moon. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, dang it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, I did open the book of Boba Fett with saying that you know, I'm trying to stick this as close to the original as possible. If I was going to do it in my own way, this would be set on Narshada. It would be a different thing entirely. So you're following through with what my general idea was. Yep. Anyway, let's let's get into this. My pitch on his pitch is an episode of his Star Trek thing. So it's going to probably be on the shorter side of our pitches here. Uh, so, as this is the, the, the first finale of Elevator Pulpit, I knew I needed to have something intriguing enough to make this a nice tradition. I was looking at the other pitches. What Josh had was a character-driven Star Trek show that's episodic, a rewrite of an entire season of Doctor Who, uh, to be more cohesive, a fundament the fundamental ideas and characters for a new Life is Strange game, and finally, a Star Wars animated duology. I eliminated Flux um, as it wasn't your idea at all. Um, you know, it was it was a rewrite of someone else's work, uh, and I didn't want to play in that playground. But it looks like you are, so I'm excited to see what you're gonna do there. Um, I also literally Life is Strange because games. I'm just not really comfortable pitching anything into that. And yes, I could switch genres and you know of of creative medium, but I had a more strong feeling for the other two. That left me with the two big ones. And as I molded over, your Star Wars one was very good, but it had to be eliminated because there's a very clear arc there. And I couldn't find a in, for lack of a better term, to write some sort of story, whether it's the focus on another character or not. There, there was just, it was tight, 
uh, and it didn't need to be any longer than it was. You know, well, that's a big thing about stories is if you artificially elongate them or shorten them, it's very noticeable. Stories should be just right, the Goldilocks method. So with that, that left me with Star Trek New Life. And uh, while you had painted uh, with broad strokes certain arcs and beats you under the hit, you did say uh, that you wanted it to be a bit more episodic and that you envisioned in this hypothetical, if you were a showrunner, that someone could pitch you an episode. Absolutely. Uh, so pitching on that, you know, I went, okay, that's my in. I'm going to pitch him an episode. So this is a pitch for an episode of Star Trek New Life entitled Happy Hours. Okay, I'm very happy you went with this direction. I suspected you <laughs> would because, as you said, this is the one with most vague, easy entry point. Uh, mm. But it's one I had a lot of fun writing the characters. A lot of them I just mentioned for a sentence or two, then they didn't really become relevant in the rest of the pitch I talked about. Mm. But I created them there to be for this kind of situation so that other writers could play with them. Mm. I'm very excited to see which ones you, you go with. Alrighty. Uh, so my general feel that I want to go for this episode is uh, something like the Voyager episode one on the Enterprise episode Doctor's Orders, mixed with a bit of the Next Generation episode True Q. So the general idea will be this is a character-focused episode, where most of the other crew will be incapacitated in some way, uh, as they were in the Voyager episode one and in the Enterprise episode Doctor's Orders, but there will be a mystery surrounding the still conscious crew members that may not be all that they seem, such as in the episode True Q. Okay, excellent. So this will be uh, you know, a character-focused episode focusing on Dr. Maureen Platos and Liv the Herbologist. Wonderful. <laughs> as I was looking through Josh's characters, I realized that these two had a lot of potential for fun dynamic. You have the older, wiser doctor who had slipped into addiction, and the younger, more herbal-based healer who deals drugs. Um, one is a prisoner, one is Starfleet. They could either get along like a house on fire, a Bashir and O'Brien relationship, <laughs> or hate each other's guts, like a Kira and Dukat relationship. I know that she, that Liv is a minor character, and is supposed to develop a relationship with Ben Jordan, but I, I think there's an opportunity here with this pairing, and it's not like we're limited to one friendship in our lives anyway. Additionally, when reviewing the information on each character, I noticed that uh, Josh had said something about Liv that he seemed to have left open to interpretation. So this is my interpretation of that. Uh, so I ran with the implications. Star Trek New Life, Happy Hours. So on the most recent jump by the holohold, the crew had found themselves in what appears to be a tree floating in space. The tree itself is as big as a galaxy-class starship, big as the Enterprise-D, so it's a fucking huge tree. Uh, Patel insisted that they investigate this strange and completely impossible thing, um, and the away team found nothing of note, but brought back some samples to be studied. As the samples are being secured on the holohold, the prison jumps once again in time and space to parts unknown. Uh, the samples are dropped in the chaos, and a strange, visible pollen begins to float about the ship. Symptoms start small, headaches, muscle cramps, the usual stuff. Then things start getting really fucking weird. An ensign's hand turns into wood, and a prisoner has a leaf come out of their nose. Nice. <laughs> Love me some body horror in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. 
second that I was worried you're going to do a naked time in my Star Trek show. <laughs> no. Um, so uh, Dr. Platos is on the scene and is immediately trying to figure out what's going on. The only one not experiencing any symptoms is Liv. Eventually, he's found out the pollen transformation only happens while conscious, so the entire crew, uh, except Platos and Liv, are sedated. Additionally, Platos thinks that the exposure to time travel caused pollen to accelerate its transformation process, that they're on a clock. Uh, they don't get a cure soon, shit's gonna go down. So, Liv is seconded by uh, Platos to, uh, to be her new emergency nurse. Liv is instructed to find any similar plant life that can be used as a, a, a to test antidotes on, uh, while Platos looks for a cure and tries to figure out why Liv isn't affected by any of this. Time goes by, uh, tensions are rising, Platos is beginning to succumb to the pollen, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's some aspect like her hair is getting leaves in it, it's, it's really fucking weird. Uh, some crew members have been forcibly awoken by the pollen and transformed into wood. Like, completely and utterly wooden statues. Uh, and they're growing branches, too. Uh, Liv continues to seem absolutely normal, though Platos notices that Liv injects herself with a miniature hypospray that she seems to have hidden in her clothes, uh, and she seems to inject it approximately every hour on the hour. It's been 12 hours. Platos is no closer to finding a cure. Her fingers on her right hand have hardened into wood, so she can only operate the, her medical equipment with one hand now. This is when she ha starts having a breakdown. Uh, she grabs a bottle from her secret stash and downs half of it in one go. Uh, she then yells at Liv, saying, uh, people are dying and Liv isn't affected, and if what's in that hypospray is the cure, that she will abandon her Hippocratic Oath and jettons her out the airlock, because, for God's sake, why isn't she helping? That's, you've got the character down perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's when Liv, who has been distant but diligently working for the past 12 hours, realizes that coming clean is the only option. See, Liv is a human hybrid. But no test confirmed what part of her DNA was from another race. It was assumed it was one of the numerous human-like species throughout the galaxy. They were both right and wrong. Liv grabs Platos' bottle, uses her hypospray, and the bottle refills itself to its original capacity. In all of this, Platos is ashamed to say her first thought wasn't about the crew, but how Liv was a walking distillery, and that could be useful for her. Uh, Liv explains that long ago, it was discovered by a brazen starship captain named James T. Kirk <laughs> that the Greek gods were in fact aliens and had visited us in our ancient past. They were a race known as the Olympians that survived on faith, on belief, and the more followers had, uh, they had, the stronger they were. As the religion died, so did they, fading into the cosmos. Uh, but the Greek gods were known to fraternize with their followers, none more so than Dionysus. So Liv is part human, part Olympian. Specifically, descended from Dionysus, or so her family legend says. Though her bloodline has been diluted throughout thousands of years, uh, so she only registers as human in a mix of something else, and her powers are minuscule compared to that of Apollo, uh, Liv said that her ancestors realized that faith was a malleable concept. It isn't purely religious. So to uh, compensate for her lack of followers, Liv injects herself with a drug that she believes will help. It's placebo effect, literally on steroids. Platos does a Hail Mary, because at this point, she's got nothing to go on. So she's like, I want you to believe in a cure. And Liv explains, that's not, not how that works, it's not that simple. Besides, 
because her bloodline is so diluted over the years, her, her power is so minuscule that something like this could very well kill her rather than doing anything. And Plato's uh, had came up with a uh, what seemed to be a cure that partially worked, but it was abandoned due to an error, and uh, she began to lo lose all hope. And, and that was when she started drinking. So Plato's asks Liv, believe in this antidote. And she, in turn, will believe in Liv. So she doesn't have to use the hypospray. They have nothing else to lose, so might as well take a leap of faith. Uh, after some false starts, it actually works. The crew is revived, the tree pollen is, is gotten rid of, and life returns to normal. All of this took about 22 hours in total, with only one casualty. At the end of the episode, Liv and Platos have a private conversation. Platos sees the classic signs of a drug addict in Liv, and Liv sees the classic signs of alcoholic in Platos. They agree to become each other's support line to believe in recovery. The first step to, you know, recovery is admitting there is a problem in the first place. That's the general episode overview, so I got some afterthoughts on it uh, to explain some of my creative choices here. Well, first I want to give you a well-deserved round of applause. You really <laughs> took my basic concept and ran beautifully with it. Uh, I'll share my depth thoughts later, but uh, please continue. Mm -hmm. So, as this was inevitably going to be a shorter pitch, uh, you know, I figured I'd include some short explanations in my thought process. So, I knew from the get-go I wanted Platos, and one additional character to focus on, and at first I envisioned a comedy episode, starring her as she screws up, getting increasingly drunk. While this was a fun gag, uh, I trashed this idea for two reasons. One, you know, it's more suited to a short story than a full-blown Trek episode. Two, Star Trek is about a hopeful future, and I think addiction and alcoholism is a subject that Trek has not always handled well. It has, but sometimes not. Uh, and so, from there, I sought out to make a more serious drama episode about addiction, and it evolved over several drafts, originally not featuring Liv, but took a major turn when I noticed something about Liv's character synopsis that I'm not sure if it was intentional or was a flub on your end or whatnot, so I ran with it. I noticed that you described her as a human hybrid, but don't go into detail what, what hybrid of what. And, um... I was like, okay, there's got to be something here, and I, I, I kept re-listening and re-listening, and I couldn't find anything, and so I decided, okay, I see an opportunity here. Uh, and you have the addict and the drug dealer. You know, a combination sure to lead to downfall. This being Trek, however, I wanted to flip that idea on its head to an optimistic idea. So the drug dealer and the addict need each other, not to be taken advantage of by preying on weakness, but to strengthen each other and form a bond of mutual benefit. As I thought about this and the hybrid thing, I knew I wanted to find a way to merge this into the same thing as a cohesive theme. As I was thinking about random Trek aliens, I remembered that Greek gods not only exist in Trek, uh, but are aliens, and we, uh, and we all know that the Greek gods were freaky when it came to procreation. Please see Zeus uh, becoming a goose to fuck a woman. <laughs> You know, if Liv was a drug dealer, then she was someone who enjoyed more carnal desires. So naturally, that led me to Dionysus. And with all that in place, I knew I needed to have uh, the tie-in, the Greek god ability of living on faith. Uh, as we saw in uh, Who Mourns for Adonais, uh, Apollo had a separate organ that processed faith for him and, and turned that into power 
and he could change reality itself, but it exhausted him, and he could only recharge from rest and worship. And uh, so, you know, this was originally an allegory for religion as an institution, and I decided to make it an allegory for personal growth and perhaps even Alcoholics Anonymous. I was fearful of the idea that it would come across as too fan servicey, as no one has really talked about the Greek god since TOS. I got around that by not having Liv specifically be the descendant of Carolyn and Apollo, as stated in an earlier draft of Who Mourns for Adonais, uh, that Carolyn was pregnant by the end of that episode, uh, implying that the Greek gods would live in uh, live on in some form. Um, and the EO books picked up on that. Peter David has a character in some of his books that is specifically stated uh, uh, near the end of that arc uh, to be descended from Carolyn and Apollo. So I figured I'd avoid that by taking a different god entirely, not related at all to that episode, just have it be the same race. Uh, I didn't want to go for blatant nostalgia. Additionally, I feared having that literal belief fix things would be a step too far on the Deus Ex Machina. But I remember uh, when I told my parents that I needed a therapist, that I believe I am mentally unwell, uh, which I am, I have clinical depression, they called it a big leap of faith on my part. And so, a Deus Ex Machina about belief, literally, God from the machine of belief, put our characters on the road to recovery. It seemed apropos. Especially as Star Trek may be many things, but it is sure as hell not subtle. It has the subtlety of a sledgehammer. And so I ran with that. So that's my pitch on your pitch. Happy Hours episode of Star Trek New Life. You know, when you gave the title Happy Hours, expecting the kind of Ferengi type shenanigans, and instead you give this like beautifully layered story onto uh, wonderful minor characters on my head and failed to give to live up to in the pitch. So thank you so much for living up to that that cool idea. Uh, a huge influence on New Life was the Next Generation episode, Disaster. That episode is such a great showcase of what you can do with an ensemble mm. cast. You can have all these different team-ups you wouldn't normally expect. Uh, you got Worf helping uh, <laughs> give birth. You have Beverly and LaForge teaming up. You have Picard mm. and kids. <laughs> so that's one of my favorite yes. episodes. And that was a key influence in New Life and that you could have all these different kind of characters have different kind of combinations across episodes. You picked a wonderful combination here. You give a beautiful reason why. Uh, and as for Liv's heritage, that was certainly not the direction I was expected in. Uh, I kind of threw in the idea of her being a hybrid kind of last minute with the kind of vague mm. notion it could be a mystery. Uh, I was never expecting you to really pick up on that. Thank you so much for proving me wrong. You picked uh, a real... I mean, that Olympian episode is absolutely bonkers, you know, from the original series. Yes. So the fact that you picked that one up to follow up on was... Initial reaction was like, oh, really? But you gave a beautiful explanation on it. I think it connects so nicely with the larger Star Trek universe. Uh, and plus, you just had me from the get-go. I love giant trees in space. Funny enough, that was something I was going <laughs> to have in my Doctor Who pitch. <laughs> so great minds to guy. <laughs> The decision to make live a Greek god thing, and I gave them the entitled Olympians because they actually have, they were given no name in Who Mourns Vadeneus. So I decided to give them the name of Olympians because seeing Greek god as a list on the list of Star Trek species is just so weird compared to just calling them the Olympians. That sounds better. It rolls off the tongue better. And I did that in my Star Trek deal. I took a, I, I took a species that technically has no canon name and stole the name from the EU. 
the expanded universe called them the beings um uh to you know they were cosmic forces but i thought that was a bit too generic and uh you know because you have q in here you have a different kind of q who's more manipulative as well as you have that one character whose name is slipping my mind at the moment who uh basically is given q powers and then is given the choice to get rid of them later you know uh, which will have consequences basically my take on that character was you know the episode early on in season one uh riker gets q powers my idea was basically to do a much longer form idea on that instead of riker having the powers from the get-go mm. this character would be gradually gaining those powers while Q-Board will be gradually losing his powers so there would be a, a mm-hmm. point in the middle of the series where the same level and they kind of duke it out and it's the the human who wins because he's actually used to physically fighting while Q-Board is just this minute manipulative asshole who just whispers in people's ears to get what he wants so he just lo- instantly loses an actual real fight. Mm-hmm. When you did that you know that got me thinking about you know, uh, not only were you examining Q, uh, you know, the godhood complex of Q, but the reason I scrapped the word beings for the Olympians or the Greek gods was because I figured there would be, because Q's featured here, it maybe caused a little bit of confusion there, uh, because the Q continuum is also like a cosmic force. And um, because you have that, that longer ongoing arc of, uh, of um, where, where Riker gets the Q powers, you're you're examining what godhood does to someone who wasn't expecting it, and as life slowly develops. So I wanted to examine what if someone grew up knowing they're kind of a big deal, uh, but had no interest in it, and which is kind of blasé about it. Uh, and I knew because the the you know Apollo's uh, you know powers in in Who Mourns for Adonais is just so ridiculous on scale uh i mean he's the one with the famous green hand that crushes the enterprise you know um i i knew i needed to scale that down so that's where i had the idea of the diluted bloodline uh just to you know keep it at a more reasonable level since we already have a q and then a q adjacent person on this crew i didn't want to add another god to the mix so i wanted to uh you know go in a different direction with it and also, you know, one thing is, uh, if you watch Who Mourns for Adonais, it's, a, it's an interesting episode. It, it wants to talk about religion as an institution, but it is kind of marred by 60s sexism um, in several places. Um, and as a result, what I wanted to do was do an episode featuring the Greek gods that focused on two women to try and counterbalance that. Uh, because the, there are some very... 60s lines in that episode um you're very smart for a woman comes to mind uh and so it's just like okay the original series was a product of its time take it at face value this is what they wanted to talk about but they inadvertently added this other theme that i don't think was conscious um so let's try and counterbalance that while also continuing their theme of religion so that was my my attempt to do that, and that's why the Greek gods came into being uh, in this in this idea, was that it just seemed natural. Especially because belief, you know, w- when I think about, like, ha- having my own mental issues, you know, part of recovery is admitting there's a problem. And admitting there's a problem requires a large, large sense of belief in self that, okay, I'm on a wrong path, I need to fix that. 
And so that seemed like the natural place to take the the, the belief idea. I know that some other fan works have uh, went their own way with um, uh, the Greek gods. Uh, Peter David has the, the descendant character of Carolyn in Apollo. I know Star Trek Continues literally brought back Apollo. They even got the original actor back. But I, I just wanted to go somewhere different with it. I, I felt like it was too cliched to do it uh, any other way. And while this way is certainly uh, not above the Star Trek um, uh, you know, heavy symbolism, uh, it felt far less cliched than descended of these two characters so a particular reason why you're drawn to uh William Petros? um well when you gave the description of the character I, I really like this like weird wacky ant vibe she gave um and uh you know the, my one of my original concepts was to do like a background one of the other characters um and a, as I thought about it I went you know, there's this character who is very different from everything else. You got the you got the hardline Starfleets. You got the uh, the hardline Freedom Fighters. You got the uh, you got the prisoners, and you got uh, Starfleet at odds. And those in those mix, and they each have their own agenda. But then you have like this random crazy woman who's uh, who's nearly drunk all the time and is kind of a disgraced woman who's like sort of uh, requested transfer here because she's tired of seeing people die. At one point, I was going to look into her backstory, um, and it was all very nostalgia baity. Of she was best friends with Pulaski, and I scrapped that very quickly, uh, just because oh my god, that was it's very much the fan idea of what an episode is, and not really anything interesting. Uh, just a handful of callbacks, and so that's why I scrapped that. Fair enough. I wouldn't be opposed to her a connection with Pulaski. I know you're a fan of Pulaski, and I think yeah, I think those two would have a kind of interesting relationship. <laughs> Maybe not so much buddies, yeah. but I think they would kind of have begrudging respect for each other. Mm. Yeah, I, I I love Pulaski, and so the the fact that she's hardly ever referenced anymore always annoys me. Um, and it, I, I remember there's a there's a book where her and Garrick. Uh, work together and it's really cool, but I, I just seem it just seemed like the natural fit. But I just went, eh, it's too fantasy and it's it's backstory fluff. Is this really necessary? Let, let, let's treat this like an actual episode of TNG. You know, explore a social theme. You know, explore a character and not have it be too in your face backstory, uh, needless backstory, and fan service. Uh, which, as a fan, I understand the impulse. I truly do, uh, but I think you need to ring yourself in sometimes and go, okay, okay, that's that's too far. We need to actually tell a story. Um, and it just her personality really struck me as something different. It's not something we really see in Star Trek. Um, you know, it felt like a mix of Pulaski's no nonsense attitude with Raffi from Star Trek Picard. If we actually wanted to delve into her addiction rather than just pay lip service to it like we do in that show. Um, and so uh, that was that was my interest in Plato's. So uh, it, it's just very, it's the crazy ant doctor. That's an interesting angle. I just wanted to thank you again for, for taking these characters. I, I had a lot of fun running around my head and didn't give enough uh, 
let's say, screen time as they deserved. <laughs> so thank you for picking up on them there. I had the idea that the officers like Pitos and Jordan would have that kind of prisoners. They're the, they're the others. They're the faceless mm. blanks. They've done horrible things. It shouldn't matter what we, you know, our survival matters. They shouldn't matter. Over the time, that kind of cruel mentality kind of breaks down as they see the, the real humanity behind them so i love that your idea mm -hmm. really taps into that concept so again thank you yeah yeah that, that was where the uh abandoned the hippocratic oath came from was i i want to symbolize that these characters are bonding but in a rough way and i was just like what what's more antithetical to a doctor than to abandon that oath because they take that oath very seriously uh and so um that was my connection to like the the platos and and all of them are just like your prisoners you're nothing uh and you know developing o over the course of these 22 hours the happy hours um you know live and platos form a relationship that will begin not only their step to recovery but also platos's respect and eventual humanization for lack of a better term of the prisoners of the hollow old and um you know the the in in the uh in the character synopsis you just said that she uh for plato specifically you said that you know she she grows to respect the prisoners and eventually comes uh you know takes the step on the long road to recovery but there was no explanation of how which of course you know we were doing a quick pitch you know that kind of thing you know gets it gets tossed by the wayside in in terms of brevity so i wanted to look at that what caused that and what if they were the same thing and so that's where that all comes from excellent uh you've gone in a completely different direction to me you've got a lovely breezy ri richly layered story and well i've got a massive <laughs> seven episode <laughs> blockbuster arc in my head <laughs> damn go for it so introducing Obafet Scorch Chapter, the hypothetical season two follow-up to DVD, well, essentially both the TV show and Kyle's more superior version. I decided early on that I wanted to do my follow-up finale pitch on this series. A personal favourite of Kyle's work was Smuggler's Moon, uh, that had such a, a flavour to it. Uh, Boba Fett was the one that really called to me. I had a lot of ideas even before your pitch, Kyle, that I wanted to capitalise on. Mm. And your pitch just gave, just like, you know, it's a match to it. There's like a more clear road where I could take the story. I wanted to deliver on the Godfather and Space pitch we, t we talked about last time uh, and really deliver on it much more than the original series and to follow on where your pitch went in that, in that kind of vibe and then expanding upon Boba's character growth. You know, he's now essentially killed the, the shadow of his father. Now perhaps it's time to kill the shadow of himself, of his actions coming back to haunt him. Following up on a seven episodes, you like the original series. Uh, they are called respectively, just to give a little tease of what's to come. Episode one, Old Warrior's Dusk. Two, Bastards of Fett. Three, Blood Exile. Four, Moonlight. Five, Kingdom of Bone. Episode six, Ties That Choke. And episode seven, Shattered Chains. Instead of a strictly weekly release per episode or to do a binge all in one go like Netflix, I thought it'd be more effective to release the series as three acts, kind of like what Arcane did on Netflix, because I, I love that show and I think that approach is more better in this day and age. You know, you don't want to binge a whole show in one day, but the wait for each episode can be a bit tiresome. So this is kind of a, the middle ground I'm going for. I'm very much in uh, in the binge camp because I don't like weekly releases. I find it 
because I, I think you forget details and stuff. And I watched Arcane after it had all come out. Oh, so did I. I binged Arcane in one day, and I absolutely loved it. I treated it as one massive movie. Yeah, same. Yeah, you know, I'm a binge person myself, but I think to a lot of people I know, they find the whole experience a bit exhausting. Binge a whole season in one day, then you have to wait like a year or two for the next one. So this way, I've got <laughs> kind of a middle ground. Uh, you'd have to be across three weeks. So that way, there's more to talk about each day when the episodes come out. So act one will be the first three episodes. Four and five for act two, and then the third act would be the last two, uh, six and seven. And to kick it all off, we've got the first act, Fall of Tatooine. Episode one, Old Warrior's Dusk. You know, with the tiles, which was a lovely brushstroke of an episode, this will be a m- lot more, lot more of a breakdown. Uh, so fetch your popcorn, relax, uh, and try to picture a blockbuster epic in your head. <laughs> <laughs> and let's begin. Star with a cold open, set just a year prior to Revenge of the Sith and the Rise of the Empire. Uh, we open up for now on an unknown planet and a mayoral compound on its capital city, the heart of which is a big dome building, linked by giant spiral s- staircase connecting the levels. Ground floor, there's a commotion. Guards are trying to get through, they're desperately banging on a locked door that leads to what well, is essentially a garage, the, the loading bay for the, say, cars. They're not cars in the Star Wars universe, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ton of blaster fire, they can't get inside, the mayor's inside, can't hear words from their security detail inside, so they're freaking the hell out. Then the shutter just slowly goes open, there's smoke and screaming, and then the screaming just stops dead. Standing there is the one and only Boba Fett. Uh, young, not quite in his prime yet, wearing his father's armour, but it's not his colours, it's still his father's, it's that steel with the blue trim on it. Behind him, everyone is dead, especially the blue-skinned mayor. The corpses are smoking on the floor. Complete his contract. It's time to get the fuck out of there without being torn apart by the mayor's guards. What I want to treat the audience to is what I think will make for a cooler sequence. A one-shot, two-minute fight sequence of Boba fighting his way up the building complex against wave of wave of guards. We are a lot like the Daredevil corridor scene from Netflix. Yeah. meets the sterile scene from the 2005 film The Protector. Some of them are... One shot, well, we have edited to make it look like one shot. A brutal one-man fight against multiple people with the camera just nice and tight, just personally falling behind. And since this is Star Wars, you've got the added flair of Boba's armor being overpowered. So you've got stuff like the flamethrower, you've got thermal detonators, you've got his vibro gauntlet blades. Boons are going to get burned alive. They're going to take a free floor drop to the ground floor. They're going to be smashed and dragged along the wall. Used as body shields against blaster fire. It's going to be a chaotic good time. I would go all out on the scene's action to set a medium impression of what's to come. Uh, doing all this fight is wearing him down. He's young. It's more. He's more emotional with his flaming attacks. It makes him more open. But you know, with the superpower of Beskar armor, he just about survives the worst of the damage. Uh, until he. He gets to the top floor and jetpacks right through the glass, shattering the skylight. Down on the streets, the people who hate the Mets, they hear all this disaster happening and they look up and see the figure of Boba. We get a nice cl- close-up on a young woman who's going to grow up to be the one and only Fennec Shand. Yep. Uh, what they don't see, they see a cool badass, but what's really happening is uh, he's flying blind. He got a ton of smoke and debris in his helmet, so he's <laughs> flying blind and he kind of smashes down onto a nearby complex dragging himself out of spotlight's way, and he takes off his helmet. It's a proper look at young Boba. Potentially, we could get Daniel Logan back to play uh, his role 20-so years later, after his hit role as Boba in Attack of the Clones. He's still attached to the character through voice acting, uh, like Clone Wars and 
of all things, the Lego game. And I think he looks the part of a younger Boba. So it could bridge the gap between kid and mm. kid Boba and adult Morrison quite nicely. Alternatively, you get a new actor. It doesn't matter either way. But it, it could just be a nice touch to have Daniel Logan back. For my shot of a younger, emotional Boba, early in his bounty hunting career, we smash cut to the aged, battle-worn face of the Boba we know now, the Crime Lord. On Tatooine, about a year has passed since the events of the first season. Meeting with the crime families of Tatooine uh, is occurring in the very early hours of daylight. They believe he's been destroyed in a barge shell explosion. He was set to meet with the barge shell he was in, uh, imploded before he ever got there, and... Barely an hour after this fact, there's a call meeting to have a replacement. Hmm, pretty sus. Uh, thankfully, he's smart enough to know to suspect this, and he faked his death by not actually going on the barge sale, by having a kind of fake body double for an android. And he he shows up to the meeting and uses off psychological tactics to get under the skin of those who call the meeting to root out who the traitor is. Uh, one of the Clatoonian leaders of the Clatoonian family. Eventually, he's reaching freaking out points because he thinks Boba already knows, so he he gives himself away through sheer fear. And he claims he did it because the Hut twins, he suspects they're kind of they're going to come any time now. It's been too easy of a year. He wants to, you know, save face, get the Boba out of the way, and win the Hut's good graces. Boba gives a signal, and his new Trandoshan bodyguard swiftly bites into the Clatoonian head, killing him instantly. Boba calmly tells the rest of the families that they assumed with Fennekoff world he was weak. They are severely mistaken. He granted the mercy of the Clutunian head a swift death. Next time, it'll be much more drawn out. Nonchalantly wishes the families a good day, and we smash cut to the title card. No, that's elaborate for a cold open, but I really wanted to establish the general tone and this dis distinction between young and old Boba. His early days being an action romp, and his present day scenario going for that godfather and space route we talked about last time. Mm. Boba now is a lot more strained and noble, yes. He's still got that cold heart drive to do what needs to be done. A ton mm -hmm. of people are still dying because of his actions. He's just now doing it for a cause instead of a paycheck. Does that make the murder better or worse? You decide. Yep, the, that, that was the ending statement of my revision was not for power, but for honor. So yeah, uh, that, that, that really works. Plus... The the Boba Fett's theme in that show, as much as misgivings as I have with that show, as demonstrated when I rewrote it, his theme with your cold open would just be beautiful. Just that boom. Uh, and then you get the chanting and it'd just be perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Boba was this iconic character from the original trilogy. We built up the mythology of him being a badass. The whole Legends and EU series, you know, Ghost Mordor's exploits, he's Mandalore, he trains Han Solo's daughter to fight her Sith brother. In the original trilogy, he doesn't really have much to do. So this is my way of expanding upon the, what the show is doing, of giving him some actual badass content. And here, you know, Old Man Boba, he has some really cool stuff, like in his introduction in Mandalorian. This would be my chance to give the, let's say, Daniel Logan days Boba some cool stuff. Uh, Clone Wars did a really nice job of fleshing out Kid Boba, so that kind of there's a lot of details from that show I'll sprinkle in for the rest of this pitch. Basically, this, this is the first thing people see of my take. It wants it's going to be Daredevil fight scene with Boba. That's a, such a perfect fit in my head. Go yeah. for that grimy, brutal look. Uh, you know, I I love that. Plus, like going up the building gives you a, a the dread vibe. <laughs> Uh, from from the 2012 Dread, as well as the Raid, uh, which is with the two things that inspired 
uh, the Daredevil hallway fight, plus you're picking up on my addition of giving Finnick a backstory, a reason why she gives a damn about Boba. I was not expecting oh, that. I love what you did with Fennec, and trust me, there's a lot more of that to come. Yeah, we, we, we were like, oh, you're taking out the mirror, everybody, I was like, oh, that's what he's doing. I was like, oh, okay. Oh yeah, you'll see as we go on, that night was very important for many characters in the story. Night that changed the fate of many. Osesper has been expanding as a guidance owned over the past year. Now that the faction's united, uh, they scaled off the pikes, which has earned a lot of respect of the people living there. The right trading deals, constructions are underway for bigger hospitals and spaceports that are receiving a lot more jobs and a semi-better reputation for Tatooine. It's no longer the bottom of the barrel in human decency. Uh, Boba <laughs> has revived Jabba's smuggling ring under the New Republic's noses while ensuring it does not involve the transportation of drugs or living cargo. Uh, so it's still shady stuff like weaponry, but it's not fucked up like living slaves. Uh, more and more syndicates, mm. who are formerly partners with the Hutt Cartel, are eyeing Fett as a potential new partner. It's a, it's a real grass is greener on this side mentality, furthering the cartel's drop in reputation following Jabba's death. Hydra Station has been updated that Drash and her mods are the designated owners and protectors of, work alongside the Aquilish crime family members of the Workers' District, ensuring water rations are given out fairly, with reasonable price, as opposed to the extortionate prices she and the rest of the town used to deal with. So this is giving Drash uh, mm -hmm. a lot more to do. It's showing that she's stepped up. She's now one of Boba's inner circle. I thought that making her the owner of something that was a big deal to her in the first season, the water station, I thought that'd be a nice little touch. Yeah, and plus it, it's Sophie Thatcher. Like, you give her material, she's going to deliver. That's one of the, the biggest sins, in my view, of, uh, you know, the, the original version, which is why I substantially increased her role. Yeah, and I much more enjoyed your take on her. Uh, I re After our epic, yeah. I re-watched Boba with my brother. It was his first time seeing it, and he despised Drash. So I think if he saw your version, <laughs> uh, I think it would be a lot more appealing. And so hopefully I'm... Um, living up to the blueprint you set out for her yeah once again i must plead people go watch prospect it's an amazing movie stars sophie thatcher you'll understand why that show wasted her in boba's inner circle of confidants is gardano the trandoshan from earlier acting as a voluntary representation uh, representative of the trandoshan clan from the city center he's fascinated by boba's methods and acts as a perhaps over eager but very loyal bodyguard essentially be my replacement for uh, Black Chrysanthemum, the Wookiee from the original series, since your pitch didn't mm. include him. You could basically switch them both out, saying this were a direct follow-up to the original series. I wanted to have a, a new Tandoshan, because I find them an interesting species. Uh, in the original series, we had a former torture droid at Jabba's Palace 88, who was in Return of the Jedi, and then made an interesting return in the, the Boba Fett series, voiced by the Britain's treasure, Matt Berry, uh, one of my favourite actors, totally hilarious, and yet they completely wasted him in that original series. They didn't really give him that much material to play with, outside of being a monotone exposition machine, which I, is a total crime. <laughs> mm. In this series, I'd ideally give him more of a role and a running gag of him slowly having this computerised breakdown, doing all these envoy uh, translation jobs, when his sadistic programming just wants to make him torture people again. I learned from your Star Wars pitch of actually having a, a funny droid in this series, so this is my way of doing that <laughs> and improving the original series' take on him. Uh, the Twi'lek Major Domo from the original series has been kept around. Everybody hates him in the palace, and they know full well he's sided with them for the sake of his own self-survival. 
but he does have the necessary contacts and experience they need to help the city, so they begrudgingly keep him around despite his frequent and over-the-top attempts to worm his way into Boba's good graces. Uh, personally, I found this character funny in his first few appearances in the show, but he quickly was welcome for me by the end, and to be transparent up front, mm. I only brought him back just so he could suffer. Uh, case in point, <laughs> in, in the actual series, he doesn't even have his own name, so I decided to call him yeah. Piloke. Which is a <laughs> is essentially just a play on the British insult pillock, meaning annoying idiot. Uh, in a TV show here, Top Gear, one of the presenters James May says it all the time. I love it when he says pillock. I find it so hilarious. And the description annoying idiot is basically the character in a nutshell. So as silly as it may sound, Piloke is the name we're going for. <laughs> uh D8 and Piloke essentially become a dark comedy duo in the series. The droid's in charge of keeping the former Major Domo in line and is in charge of taking him out if he attempts to escape or betray Boba. But 8D8 is desperate to actually hurt somebody again, so he keeps trying to trick Piloke into violating the terms. It's like he'll casually drop a weapon on the floor, like, Oh dear, I appear to have dropped my electric pod. Would you care to pick it up? And Piloke, who knows better, is like, <laughs> uh, No, thank you. I'm, I'm sure someone else can do it. One of the earliest scenes we'd have is Fennec returning to Mos Esper on a cargo ship after a month or so away uh, as Boba greets her personally and there was even a small crowd of people uh, cheering her return. Uh, she's still not used to having a fan base from people. You know, she's been a bounty hunter for most of her life and now she's the right-hand man to the person she idolised and everyone loves her. So mm. she it's taken a lot. She's kind of not sure how to feel about it. Uh, we see the reason she was away was collecting Boba's items that he had stored in safe houses prior to being trapped in the Sarlacc pit that was stolen and sold while he was absent. Some of the items are rare weaponry or pieces of packed victims Boba kept as trophies. There's one thing Boba is interested in seeing again, more than the others. A battered hollow data chip, or as he jokingly calls it, a book. Boba and Fennec have a quiet moment together. As he opens up about his past, he tells her that when his father died, all he had left was Slave One his father's armour, and the book that Django had written and left to his son, with advice on hunting targets and the history of their armour, how it belonged to Jasta Muriel, Django's own adopted father. A Boba reflects on how, in his anger following his father's death, he obsessively studied the book as a child, just to learn how to be more of an effective killer, blindly ignoring the Mandalorian history Django had tried to gift him, the connection he was giving him to a creed, to a legacy. He mentions that once long ago, he did try to give up his life of a killer to lead a normal life and reconnect with his Mandalore heritage, but it ended in tragedy, as these things tend to do, and set him back to the place of comfort, his father's armour with a blaster in hand. But now he has grown older and hopefully wiser, he is content with the path he has made for himself and is willing to relearn his connection to Mandalore history, Steve has place in his new life and even contemplates adding his own and Fennec's teachings to the book, not wanting to limit himself or others who he may share the gift with. Uh, this is another way of him trying to break out of his father's shadow, add his own stamp to mm. the legacy of the armour. Venick is naturally touched by this. Uh, they both say it because they're both, they're both stoic, but they are, they are each other's best friend. They have a lot of respect for each other. Mm. Because they're both awkward killers, they don't know how to communicate that properly. <laughs> uh, the first episode largely follows the day in the life of Boba as a crime lord and protector of the city particularly his meeting with a Tuscan clan in the desert, accompanied by Gardano in Slave One, as he tries to negotiate a seat for them on the city's representative table. As his time with his old Tuscan clan, I would see that the Tuscans have just as much claim to the fate of the planet 
as anyone else, and he believes uniting them will be beneficial for both parties. The Dune Seas will receive safety from the Tuscans, allowing Moss Espen's uh, operations to expand and learn their farming technique, while the Tuscans receive medical supplies from Moss Esper, and there will be a ceasefire on both sides. A lot of people, including Gardano, are sceptical about this, and the Tuscan clan themselves demand Bova prove himself in a combat trial with their best warrior. While there's a fight he just barely wins due to his aging body, he didn't get any sleep that night, and flashes of guilt within memories he's getting of his, his old clan, his old Tuscan family, he proves himself to the clan as understanding their waves with his battle staff techniques and customs, and they agree to pursuing Boba's wish for integrating the Moss Esper, sending a warrior ahead as an ambassador. While he is away, Fennec is running things in a Clatoonian sector of the city, now that the role of the spaceport has abruptly become vacant, and hears word of a new arrival to the planet, requesting to meet Boba for vital information. To her anger, she recognises the call sign for the ship it's from, because it used to be her ship. She meets with a man, and while we don't see the person himself, we see Fennec's surprise and outraged reaction. During this, we'd see three masked engineers at the spaceport pull out smuggled weaponry and, uh, as they, that they hid on the cargo ship they arrived on, and sneak away evading security checks. On his return back to the city, Boba finds Fennec and the man brawling in the streets, interrupting the fight, and discovering that this man is none other than his old partner and rival, Dengar. Dengar informs Boba that he is seeking amnesty on Moss Esper, and in exchange, he has important information to share on an impeding attack, as well as cryptically teasing that Boba already owes him one, a statement that Fennec is very guilty about. They drag Dengar back with them to the palace, where Pinocchio and 8D8, left in charge of receiving contacts from the upcoming new partnerships from syndicates and clans to organise a sit-down. However, they sheepishly reveal that the only messages they've gotten are angry replies from the clans, talking about how they spotted Boba in his armour, attacking their shipments and businesses, and have cut out their burgeoning partnership with the Fet Ghidorah. The group is thrown off by this, except Dengar, who sees their attack has already started with this framing. He's like, it may be already too late, they might be here already. Who? Your bastards, Fet. Story ends with an attack on the Hydro Station. Drash and her people are fending off a well-coordinated attack from just three people. As more of the people being killed off bit by bit, we see the three people clearly, all in armour, of different colours and mass design. One is an original clone trooper armour. One is a Mandalorian designed steel with blue tinges, very closely resembling Django Fett's armour. And a third, the leader of the team, has gold-like armour resembling a Mandalorian Neo-Crusader Field Marshal of the Old Republic. The real identities will come to play later on. For now, let's call them Trooper, Moon Knight and Neo-Gold Leader respectively. The story ends with them taking over the Hydro Station and imprisoning Drash. Bastards of Fett are here. Uh, now before I continue, since Dengar is a pretty nobody character in the original series, but has a lot more uh, juicy content in the EU, I've already let you Kyle explain it to those, yeah. uh, a little detail in his backstory, if that's okay with you. Please, you're, you're asking me to pull out some stuff from my old <laughs> days. Uh... <laughs> so, in the old Expanded Universe, he was the one that saved Boba from the Sarlacc. Um, I actually have that book somewhere laying around my room at the moment. And uh, he's the bounty hunter that appeared in Empire Strikes Back. He's the one with the bandages all over his head. And he's got a you know, relatively small role uh, that's expanded upon in the EU. I think he's now back in canon again. I think someone has introduced him in like a comic or something. I can't remember. Uh, but, yeah, he's just one of the Bounty Hunters, he's part of the Bounty Hunter Guild, he's part of that entire storyline that goes through the books. It's been many years since I've read that stuff, so I'm a bit rusty. 
Uh, but in general, him and Boba have an old school rivalry going back to when they were younger, and then him saving Boba kind of rubs that in a little. And uh, there's there's the whole fight for the Mandalorian armor uh, in that arc. Uh, but yeah, a minor character who's important to the EU as far as he's he's known as the one who saved Boba, which they got rid of in Boba Fett. Uh, Book of Boba Fett by just having Boba save himself, which I didn't like. So in my rewrite, which uh, Josh has uh, picked up on, I hinted at that Finnick had rescued him along with a mysterious person, and I and I had stated, uh, just in case you don't remember, it's been a while since he listened to that episode, that in a hypothetical season two, this mysterious person would be revealed to be Dengar to get that uh, expanded universe connection. Here we are. You gave me quite a challenge, but... Uh... I accepted it head on. <laughs> so on to episode two, Bastards of Fett. Cold open, we're back to the time and setting of the last episode's cold open. Except this time, instead of seeing Boba's breakout rampage, we see the aftermath of his assassination. Uh, the room he left behind, the blue-skinned Pantoran mayor is dead on the ground. And unknown to Boba, a young terrified boy is crawling out of hiding, clambering to his father's corpse. To the present day, uh, the city's on edge with the water supply cut off and the trio have taken control of it. They've hacked and armed the complex's defences against any intruders and are giving out messages that the surviving workers of the stations will be killed off should any attempts be made. Boba and his crew uh, review the security footage of the station, watching the attack as Dengar and informs them on the mercenaries who, who he knows goes by the Bastards of Fett. Information he has picked up on for eavesdropping and in interrogating the information out of others. Uh, the Hut twins have been plotting revenge and a takeover for the past year. Seeking a direct attack from the Pikes last year didn't succeed. The problem is that half the room are either terrified of Boba due to his growing legacy as the man who came back from the dead, or have great respect for him following his many years as a bounty hunter and see that his new crime empire may correct the mistakes of the Huts, uh, since they partnered with the Empire and they've, a lot of the universe the Huts that they could have partnered with the Rebels to make a real difference, but they didn't even bother to lift a finger. Uh, it doesn't help that the Huts are also trying to suppress any distribution of security footage obtained from Jabba's barge sale, that of his embarrassing death at the hands of Princess Leia. This tainting of their fearsome reputation further enrages the Hut. If this was made public, if people could see Jabba being strangled by his own slave, it would make a laughing stock out of them. So they've been pretty... They've, had, they've been having a hard time trying to encourage anyone to actually take action against Boba. However, as luck would have it, a group approached the twins, First, they demanded the chance to take out Boba, seemingly with their own goals and reasons to kill him. The Huts always encourage the first revenge in their employees. It makes them cheaper to buy. So they agreed to supply this group with the fundings needed for their plans to capture Boba in exchange that he be brought in alive. They can humiliate him, but not kill him. They want to personally execute him on Nal Hutter, in public, as a warning to those who step in on what the Huts deem as their own turf. Ingar admits to not knowing the true identities of the group, or why they choose to wear the armour, or go by the, by the bizarre title Bastards of Fett. For Fennec reasons, it's part of a psychological tactic to try to strike a nerve with Boba. The fact he's been mostly silent and transfixed on the security footage the whole time, plus the fact that Drash is a hostage, implies that it's done his job of, of getting under his skin. Boba and Fennec recognise certain battle techniques used by the mercenaries. One in the clone arbor is following standard stormtrooper shooting stance. One in a Django-like armor shows a hand-to-hand -hand combat style, originated by Kifar fighters, while the gold leader seems to be displaying several techniques. The armor has been made a great deal to resemble Mandalorian armor, but they can tell it's not made of Beskar. 
is essentially a bootleg copy of Mandalorian armor. Conversation between Dengar and Fennec starts to get heated, so Boba demands an explanation from the two on how they know each other. They both relent and explain a past interaction and how it revolves around Boba jumping into a flashback sequence, uh, picking up on what you, you were saying earlier of your series uh, having a different take on how Boba escaped the Sarlacc pits. Several years ago, when Boba was still a bounty hunter, Danga had fallen in love with one of Jabba's past slave girls, Manaru, uh, an Aruzan woman. She was nearly killed by Jabba doing all of his bad moves, but was coaxed out of it by Boba, saving her life. Following word of Jabba's death days later, there was a free-fall scuffle at Jabba's palace by those who wanted a piece of his riches. Dengar stormed the palace during the chaos and freed Manaru and the other slaves, killing those who got in his way, unknowingly sparing Bib Fortuna from any rivals he would have had from taking the throne for himself. So Dengar may have had a bit of a hand in the, <laughs> the absolute shit show that Bib Fortuna had in controlling the city. Uh, Several years later, while trying to lay low on Tatooine, trying to build up enough credits to make a new life for themselves, Inga and Manu were tracked down by Fennec Shand, who herself was on the run at the time following the fall of the Empire. He came to Tatooine, knowing this was the last sighting of Boba, and that he and Dengar had history together. In Clone Wars, Boba and Dengar had formed a group together, Kayat's Claw, while Boba was still a teenager, so this will be, this will be acknowledged a lot. Dengar insisted that he had long became rivals since Kayat's Claw fell apart. Uh, she knows that he's one of the few remaining people who knew where Jabba's barge sale was going that day. She offers to pay him to take him to the Sarlacc pit, where she believes Boba is still alive. He accepts, partially believing that he owes Boba one after saving Manu's life, and takes her there across the danger of the Dune Sea on a skidder. Together, they free Boba from their stomach with Sarlacc pit, and Fennec seeks to restore him fully, but Dengo refuses. Uh, he sees that he's done, a, he's done his job already, he's honoured their agreement, uh, he's on the debt to Boba, and he makes his way to the Skidder, seeking to just abandon Boba there. Nick argues, the same argument that Boba partially remembers from your pitch, and they nearly get into a fight till Dengar yep. threatens to destroy the Skidder, which would abandon them both to the danger of the Dune Sea. Because uh, he's a bit of an ass, he mocks her desire to save that, calling it misplaced. In their profession, fellow hunters are not to be worshipped, but to be tolerated at best, removed at worst. He says Boba would never return the favoured roles reversed. Accident and a cybernetic conversion made Dengar heartless, Boba chose to be that himself. In the end, Fennec reluctantly accepts and joins him in going back to the town, leaving Boba to his fate that we know unfold in both versions of Series 1. Back in town, Dengar betrays Fennec, knocking out long enough to show that he and Manu can escape in Fennec's ship, leaving her stranded on Tatooine, leading into her debut in the first seat of Mandalore, where she is hiding on Tatooine from other bounty hunters. Back in the present, Boba points out the ironic justice would have it, he did return a favour to Fennec, by chance after all, by saving her life and giving her the cybernetic enhancement she needed, and he's suspicious of why Dengar would come back now, seeking hospitality after all this time. Dengar admits he's still struggling to make a living, and a stable home he wanted for Manru, and now she's in active danger, as the huts have initiated a hunt for the former slaves of Jabba, seeing them as property to the huts, whose freedom was never paid for, and so seek to reclaim them as a sign to the universe that they will now no longer tolerate the death of Jabba of having such consequences. They plan on reactivating long dormant tracking implants in the slaves. Hearing of Boba's new power, Dengar came to barter information in exchange for protecting Manru, Boba tentatively agrees to look into providing safety for the former slaves, but is wary of Dengar's possible betrayal, knowing to take one barter from the huts for him to stab him in the back. Security feed from the Hydro Station becomes live again, as Neo Goldleader speaks directly to it, asking for a parlay meeting with Boba to negotiate. At the Hydro Station, the Goldleader and the Trooper set her to meet Boba, leaving a Django lookalike, aka uh, codename Moon Knight, in charge of the hostage, 
and getting a chink in Boba's armor out of Drash, knowing she's the key to undermining Boba's control. Kill the heart, kill the man, to borrow from your series. That that was the cliffhanger for, I believe, my episode 5, Kill the Heart, Kill the Man. So, yeah. So, yeah, Sam Baby, Willem Dafoe, Green Goblin. <laughs> First, we attack his heart. <laughs> <laughs> Moonlight begins torturing Drash for information, hotwiring her cybernetic implants to torture her from within and feeding her drugs to make her more open. Taking this opportunity to sadistically mock her for believing that she was special to Boba, calling her a parasite, taking in to satisfy Boba's own ego, that he will abandon her whenever he feels like it. We leave the scene as Josh finally breaks down, screaming from the pain. Boba, Fennec and his circle meet with goal leader and trooper, no weapons, just to sit down to discuss a parlay. Neo goal leader takes off his helmet, charismatically revealing himself as a blue-skinned Pantoran. Uh, Pantorans have, they usually have gold markings on their cheeks to represent their family markings. Uh, this guy, these markings have been burned off ages ago. He introduced himself as Anasandros, son of the mayoral leader that Boba had killed years ago as seen in Cold Open, but more importantly, the same leader in charge of Fennec's home world, the same kind who stripped it apart and fractured its society. Uh, and Fennec, upon realising this, she's naturally angry, uh, She's like, your father was a corrupt scumbag who was meant to help us, but instead wasted his money on four mistresses. Uh, but Anasandros, he just kind of dismisses this. To a son, the sins of his father hardly matters, and he bleeds Bo before people know this. Anasandros talks about how he was forced to flee the planet following his father's death. What was supposed to be a cushy wealth was dindled down to a meagre supply. He was always terrified that Boba would hunt him down. It was through the formation of the Empire that he, that he finally found a comfortable new way of life, acting as a child spy for them. Infiltrating insurgents by taking the role of a lost child orphaned by the Empire, taken him by pity, only for him to worm his way up and backstab those who would offer him a home to the Empire. Across the years, he developed many skills from the various groups and species that took him in, and the wealth he gained from the Empire for every head of the enemies delivered to them. Following the Empire's fall, there was no official list of his involvement with them as a black label spy, and following news of Boba's death, for several years he found a new kind of peace. A peace that was shattered by news of Boba's return from the dead, and now taking on the same kind of uh, mayoral position his father used to have. Enraged by this, he sought to put down his childhood boogeyman for good, creating a deal with the twins. He talks about how he spent considerable money digging into history of Fett, trying to separate truth from myth. He's like, you know... There are a lot of fascinating speculations about who you are under that mask. A rogue Jedi, the heir to Mandalore, the brother of Darth Vader. <laughs> but I gotta say, the truth is rather anticlimactic. Behind all the legends and ruthless bravado, not just a copy, a clone, an obsolete weapon that got above its station. The audience won't actually find this out till later, uh, around episode 4. Anasandros actually reached Django's hollow book before Fennec collected it, and learned of Django's tactics and connection to Mandalore, and sought to use it for himself, also outfitting the book with a tracking device. Uh, more on that later. With this insight, he formed a team of people like him, whose lives were damaged in the aftermath of Boba's own life. He gives Boba a chance to surrender himself now, to be collected by the bastards to the twins, and spare the city from severe damage. Boba refuses, and Anasandros and Trooper leave abiding by the parley, but warn Boba the next time they meet, He'll wish he stayed inside that Sarlacc pit, as well as teasing the codename of their third member, Moonlight, claiming that for whatever reasons, he seems to despise Boba even more than he does. The revelation of who Anasandros is and the reveal of the title Moonlight deeply unnerves Boba. For most of these first two episodes, he has had his helmet off, showing his face freely to the world, 
Guys put that mask back on again, and has, and has returned to his stoic persona, retreating into his old shell of Boba Fett. His circle asks him what they are to do, but he is too distracted to conceive solid plan. Alessandros sends a signal to Moon Knight, who has finished her first part of the plan, and that was a go-ahead sign to finish the next part. From the station, the bastards release a broadcast to the city, showing a badly tortured and drugged Drash confess her part in deceiving the Trandoshans last year during the Pike's Crisis to trick them into siding with Boba. A uh, continuing idea in your take that Fennec and Drash yep. would have more to do in manipulating the factions. Sparks outrage within the factions, undermining Boba's control, and Gardano is called back to the Trandoshans, leaving him conflicted on where his loyalty should lie. Not they have damaged the people's faith in their so-called protector, Anna Sandros issues an ultimatum to the people of Mos Espa. The Evan Boba isn't detained by daylight of the next day. The bombs in the hydro station will be detonated, crippling the town's water and energy supplies for months. With many panicked, a schism forms within the city, with half of its people rioting and ready to storm the city centre to bring in Boba. Together with Fennec, Drengar and the Tuscan warrior, they fend off the attack. Boba tries not to kill any of them at first, understanding that they are just scared and that they are still his people, demanding his circle not to, uh, not to kill him either. But as he is overwhelmed, he relents and brutally kills one of them, scaring off the rest and leaving him ashamed as he's looking at the blood on his hands at how easy it was to revert back being back to that angry killer after being rattled by the bastards of Fett. The first wave was repelled, but it can't hold up for much longer. The episode ends with Fennec saying, It's over, we can't stay here anymore, your kingdom has fallen, we need to get off Tatooine now. On to episode 3, Blood Exile. Uh, we have a brief cold open, we're back to young Boba, you know, as he's trying to hide on the male compound, and he's rescued by fellow bounty hunter, Sintas Vel, uh, and the two escape capture. Back to the present, despite warnings, Boba seeks to go to Hydra Station to rescue Drash, and if possible, defuse the bombs to save the city. He will run away eventually, but he believes it's his duty to do what he can to help the city. Dengar sees it as a lost cause, and flees while Fennec, while not fully on board with the idea, agrees to help, providing the distraction for the bastards in the city. She and the Tuscan warrior take command of the rest of the city's citizens, essentially becoming their marshal to calm down the riots and hold off those who would try to take in Boba and associates. While Anasandros and Trooper go to investigate the disturbance, thinking that's where Boba is, Boba is sneaking in through the Hydra Station's pipeline. Meanwhile, Jabba's Palace, uh, formerly known as Jabba's Palace, now Boba's, is under attack as people assume that's where Boba is hiding. Great chunks of it is being torn apart as Boba's guards and associates are panicking about what to do since Boba has gone radio silent on them. Uh, Peloke, the weasel as ever, goes, Don't panic, I have a cunning solution. Quickly picks up a kitchen knife and slits the throat of one of the guards, pushing into 88's way, giving it a distraction he needs to flee, escaping the rest of the guards, He's screaming and crying the whole time. He's not killed anyone before, so he's like hyperventilating. And as he's running out into the desert, tells the citizens that the Boba is back in the city. And meanwhile, the robot is just having a breakdown that he missed his one chance to kill the Twi'lek that he hates so much. <laughs> On the streets, the riots have been suppressed by Fennec's actions. She gets into a fight with Trooper, one that she quickly wins, because, you know, it's a Stormtrooper. Of course he's going to lose. Uh, Fennec yeah. nearly kills Trooper, but after scene, but she sees that he's scared, he's out of his depth. Uh, he, she gets a sense that he's just Anasandros lucky, so she relents and leaves him badly hurt but alive. Perhaps Boba's mercy is rubbing off on her. Too bad, it immediately backfires, as Anasandros attacks from behind, knocking her out. Knowing where Boba has gone now, he orders Trooper to drag Fennec back to the ship as prisoner for the huts, while Anasandros heads down to hunt down his boogeyman. Back at the station, Boba feeds Drash and other hostages. He tells her to get to Slave 1. 
If he's not back in time, she's to flee in the ship with Fennec and as many other allies as possible. He disables some of the bombs, but is savagely attacked by Moonlight in an ambush. She corners him outside, he demands that she reveal herself, suspecting her to be an old flame, Sintas Vel. She takes off her mask, revealing a young woman in her 30s. She's like, oh, so you do remember her name? How noble. Well, sorry to disappoint, but my mother has been dead for some time. Unlike you, she doesn't get a chance to come back. I'm the one you left behind, father. I am Aelin Vell, and to pay all the pain you put my mother through, I will take your head after the huts are done with it. We've got a big reverse I am your father moment. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. As Kyle will probably know, I'm taking huge chunks from the Legends canon by introducing Boba's daughter. Yep. I will have a little discussion on that in a moment. Sandros shows up, and from here on out, the final act of this episode is a brutal fight. A worn-out, sleep-deprived, and emotionally compromised Boba against two stronger, young, rage-driven rivals. The fight goes from the Hydro Station, as Anna Sandros detonates the main bombs, forcing them all to flee with their jetpack to escape the Inferno. The fight goes from the sky to ground, switch switching from blaster fire to hand-to-hand -hand combat on a whim. Cut to Dengar for a bit, uh, the coward running away doing all chaos. The power outage has crippled his own ship, and he's running about town trying to find a working and open ship. He finally finds one, but the audience don't see it for themselves. Back to the fight, having him cornered, Aelin throws a thermal detonator. He avoids the worst of the bass by using his jackpack, but his right leg is badly burnt into flames, and he finally comes crashing down. Finally overwhelmed, the fight drained out of him. Despite being clearly down for the count in order to keep him alive, to be executed by the huts, Anna Sandros sadistically plunges his gauntlet's vibroblade right into Boba's left eye. Uh, and Anna Sandros' promise was right. Boba wishes he was back in the Salak pit. Suddenly, he gets a last-minute rescue from Gardano and the Tusken warrior. They fend off the bastards of Fett as they drag the half-dead Boba away. Drash comes flying down in a slave one for an emergency pickup. Anna Sandros fires on them. Gardano uses his body as a shield. Uh, his body is much stronger than a human's, it has a kind of healing factor, but hift after hit is gaining too much, and a young Tandushan finally dies, ensuring Boban and the Tuscan escape on the Slave 1. If this were a direct follow-up to the original show, this would be Black Chrysanthemum the Wookiee's big sacrifice moment. The former slave, lying down his life to save the man who finally treated him with respect. But like I said, they're pretty much interchangeable. Sandros orders Trooper to take their ship's secondary control room and follow them with the truck in the boat book before they get out of range. He's a dick to the Trooper, essentially. The Trooper's, you know, he's kind of freaking out. He feels bad now that the FedEx spared him. But Anna Sandros is just bullying him into doing this job to follow them before they get out of range with the, by going into light speed. On Slave 1, Drash is panicking. She doesn't know where to go. And the Tuscan Warrior, who has never been on a ship before, he's freaking the hell out from seeing his home world from space. Boba is losing conscious, but before he passes out, he says... Camino. Take me Camino. Back on Tatooine, while Aelin is furious at Boba getting away, she is also angry at Anasandros' methods by, like, blowing up the station when they already had Boba in grasp. She just wanted to get at Boba for revenge. She didn't want to hurt the Tatooine people. Anasandros casually mentions that he wanted to destroy the people's faith in Boba should he return, and comments that they will appease the huts with Fennec Shans in chains. If Trooper fails, words of Fennec's execution will surely drive up Boba from the ditch he hides in. And the episode ends with him picking up Boba's abandoned broken helmet and wears it as a trophy. And that is the end of Act 1. Uh, any thoughts before we go on to Act 2, Exodus? It's a very excellently done, the decay of this empire, you know, he, he you know, it kind of has a nice rhythm to it because in Mandalorian, he just kind of shows up and shoots Bib and then he has an empire. And so uh, it's kind of funny that someone did the exact same thing to him, just shows up, 
just cripples him, his empire falls. So, you know, Rome was not built in a day, but Boba's empire was built in a day and fell in a day. I like that that symbolism there. I, I like the idea of doing uh, the entire Sins of the Past kind of thing. Uh, I think that's really cool. Um, pulling some stuff from the EU, doing some of your own original stuff, and pulling from my own stuff, and, and, and doing your own way with it. Uh, this is really good. Um, I'm actually really interested that, uh, if I remember back when we did that one, you had actually talked about, you know, would you consider going to Camino? Uh, because we kept seeing those flashes of Camino, and I said, oh, I, I don't know, like, I, I'm just more focused on... Like this, you know, I don't really want it to be on Tatooine, but I'm I'm content where I'm at now that if I did a future season, I'd just stay on Tatooine. You know, I, I, I got the world building there. I got the characters. There's no need to move. But I do think it would be interesting to maybe go to Camino to parallel the fact that he's on a desert planet and he was born on a water planet. And I think that that, that has a way to uh, have a visual symbolism there. Uh, and then he was reborn in a desert, basically. Uh, I like the tie-in with all the Tuscan stuff. This is proving to be very interesting. As I expressed in the past, I hate Tatooine. Uh, I knew from the get-go yeah. I wanted to be on Camino, but I wanted to take the time. I didn't want to just immediately leave Tatooine. Uh, the fall of Tatooine arc is about the decay of a kingdom, as it were. It's destroyed overnight, mm. but unlike Bib Fortuna's sudden death, this is a more brutal, slow build kind of fight mm. with a lot of history behind it. Uh, but now that Tatooine is over, there's a lot more variety in the plants we're going to go to, uh, like Camino, and as I hinted at earlier, uh, Hut Space itself, which yep. is something I wish that the movies have done, because that would be such a interesting setting, and that you pictured beautifully with Smuggler's Moon. So it's funny how we yep. both wanted to go in that direction, <laughs> go to that planet and its moon. We just both had different mm. takes on uh, the the time period. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, I, in my hypothetical, you would ask me, "What if you? Well, what if you were to continue? What were you going to do?" And I pitched like a the War of the Bounty Hunters is what I called it. And so that this isn't exactly that. That this is a more personal thing. So you're doing something in the same vein, where it was going to be. It, my original idea was a you know a group of bounty hunters hired by the Huts that all have a personal connection to Boba. But like not like characters that are directly like affected by him in some way, the bastards effect kind of thing. So you've you've went in a similar but different direction at the same time. So very interesting. I think in universe at this point, like Boba was supposedly dead for a while, and now he's back, and now he's a crime lord. I think that would freak out mm. most of the criminal underworld into not even daring to go on the planet. Uh, so I thought mm -hmm. the way I go about this would be have that kind of personal, sadistic kind of character to it. Uh, you know, with Cad Bane and the Pikes and the Huts, they were just obstacles. They didn't have that kind of, you know, Cad Bane has a kind of history of Boba Fett, but it wasn't, yeah. uh, wasn't a driven hatred for him. I wanted to go for more mm. personal antagonists in the series. And and I'm really liking the brutality. That That's that's something I've always been concerned about with Star Wars is how far is too far. Um, and, uh, if you really want to do a criminal underworld story, you gotta, you gotta be willing to push it. And even in Smuggler's Moon, I had the reach a point of going, okay, I'm gonna have to rein this in a little, I don't want to go too far. Um, but I, I'm liking your unrestrained, uh, balls to the wall, let's just do this. Um, like, I didn't really have the guts to do it in Smuggler's Moon, even though I tried in many areas and I got away with some stuff that... Uh, I think definitely George Lucas would disapprove of, and Disney would never okay. You know, there was uh, there was still that like PG thirteen 
to its hardest, just verging on R, but, you know, raining in just enough. I, I like that you're just like, nah, fuck that, let's go all the way. I've got a pretty brutal death coming up. I'm very excited to talk about it. <laughs> a lot of my friends think I'm the, the cute, soft writer who writes happy stuff. Nah, I can go dark places when I want to. <laughs> so this was... I'm, I'm a writer who writes it, Devil of Darkness, fit the franchise. So I've shared a lot mm -hmm. of my friends, my Doctor Who fanfics and whatever, and they're pretty, they're pretty fun, they're fluffy, they get a little angst. But mm. uh, with Star Wars, with this type of criminal setting... I wanted to go far, and I hope you, you guys enjoyed the upcoming death scene as much as I do. But that's it for Act 3. Uh, for now, let's focus on Act 2, Exodus, Episode 4, Moonlight. Episode opens up with a sensual reverse image of that repeating scene we saw in the TV series as a child boba wakes up a Camino to see his father and slave one leave. Here, we see an aged clone trooper with a misshaped face sleeping in the ruins of Camino's capital city, where the cloning facility was. You might not notice, Kyle, but that facility was destroyed by the Empire in the series finale of Bad Batch. It's an infrequent series, but that was a pretty great finale. I did, I did like getting the answer what happened to Camino. Uh, we see the clone waking up, running to the torn apart end of the room to witness Slave One come crashing down into the water. We learn that this long-retired soldier is called Termite. And after convincing his fellow suspicious, uh, you know, brothers and examinoans, they rescue Slave One from sinking into the ocean and help its crew inside. Discovering to the delight that one of their brothers is in there, the half-dead Boba. After giving Boba what he needs to survive, uh, this will be more... It wouldn't be like a cheap out of the back to tank, like Disney has been using the back to tank as a get out of jail free card a lot, like in the Obi-Wan show. Here it would be a lot more nitty-gritty with the technical stuff used to keep him alive. Termite explains to Drash that he and a couple of others of his fellow clone soldiers, along with several Kaminoans, have returned to the home following the fall of the Empire after spending decades scattered and in hiding following the Empire's purge of the clones uh, when the Stormtrooper program kicked in. Suffering from guilt for what he did in Order 66, Termite self-mutilated his face so that he wouldn't see the face of a killer in reflections. The Kaminoans later helped uh, Helped it with a synthetic silver skin graft. They have tried to rebuild the city to make it livable, but it's very slow progress, and they are wary of asking the New Republic for aid, unsure how they will be treated. Uh, in the background of all this lore and character building, we'll see the Tusken Raider warrior kind of freaking the fuck out of the surroundings. <laughs> oh, naturally, we don't understand what they're saying, but you can pick up through the you know the body language and the shouting, their general gist is, "Holy crap! What the hell is wrong with the sand? It's the wrong color. It keeps moving." Is this the ocean thing we heard about? I just love the idea of a, of a Tusken Raider who has no context for like the larger universe just suddenly on this completely different uh, kind of surface. Most of that stuff is happening in the background. The real meat of the story is in Boba's head as we have a big flashback. He's delusional in pain and he has flashes of his past as a young man, aka his Daniel Logan days, when he met Sintas Vale, uh, the knight of Fennec's homeworld being purged of its corrupt political leaders, and the knight Alessandro's father was killed. Uh, she's a fellow bounty hunter, a kind of warrior. She helped him evade capture in the complex, and they both go undercover to escape capture from the remaining guards of the political leaders. Attachment was something a young Boba struggled with, but over the days he, found, he finds himself opening up to her more and more, more than he has done to anyone in the past, and the two fall in love. Eventually, the rebelling people do the job for them in killing the rest of the political followers, including a brief cameo from a young Fennec taking her first life, inspired by the actions of Boba, uh, and this allows Boba and Sintas to finally get off worlds. Their jobs put a strain on the relationship, and Boba's conflicted about what to do, going over the hollow book his father left him, pouring over any information that may help ease his conscience, see if there's any hints on what his father wanted. Uh, 
but Sintas assures him it's okay to go off Burke, to follow a different path. With the Clone Wars seemingly coming to an end, they decide to retire from bulk hunting and try to create a normal life with, with their accumulated wealth as Boba buries his father's armour. Together, they go to the planet Concord Dawn in the Mandalore sector, the world Jango Fett was native to, and where it said that the gravitational density of the planet makes it feel like it can touch the moonlight. They take on new identities and job, Boba goes as Jasta Muriel, and now goes as Journeyman Protector. So this is a lot of stuff from the Legends series, the stuff about mm. the Moonlight, that's my own spin on it. I did a lot of research into Legends, see if there was any interesting aspects you could pick up, and I felt like this stuff about him trying to live a normal life and get married and have a kid, I found that fascinating stuff, so I kind of brought that in, and there's some, there's some changes, like the stuff about Moonlight and what happens, mm -hmm. uh, what kicks him out of the planet. I thought it would be a great jumping on point and hopefully give a kick for uh, Legends fans like you, Carl. Mm -hmm. It seems a pleasant life. Boba struggles to keep his rage in check as he deals with new leaders, following the siege of Mandalore as seen in Clone Wars, as well as the rise of empires. These new leaders be are being abusive and corrupt for their power. Finally, this rage he's critical as he finds a superior officer he had a ride with attempting to rape Sinter uh, and savagely beats him before throwing him a window, falling to his death. Uh, he was jailed. Faced a death sentence if he didn't agree to confess that the ulterior motive was jealousy, the officials wanting to bury the dark truth of the officer's real intent. Sintas visits him, tries to get him to follow along, tries to tell him something important, but Boba refuses to listen. His personality is once again cold, bluntly telling her to leave, that their relationship was over, it was a mistake for him to be more than what he was born and moulded to be. The last thing he says to her is, I made a mistake of believing I could touch the moonlight, but I can't. It's just an illusion. After she leaves, he breaks out of the prison and escapes the planet in a self-imposed exile. He collects the buried armour, and we see the moment where he repaints it to the red and green we know. In Legends, the colour for Mandalorian armour was a symbolic representation. Here, green means duty and red honours one's parents. We see young Boba embrace what he perceives, perhaps wrongly, as his heritage as a cold-blooded killer as he dons the redesigned armour and is determined to kill all emotions within. It's only now in present as Boba awakens, semi-healed, that he realises Sentas was trying to tell him she was pregnant and that his abandonment had cursed Sentas and hid the daughter he never knew he had, that they must have been ostracised from the Society of Concord, leading to island, uh, which translated from Kifar means moonlight, holding this deep resentment for the absent father in her life. The, the poor lackey of Bastard's effect, Trooper, uh, he finally arrives at the city with his ship, tracking him down with a tracking chip in a hollow book, and is about to send a signal to Anna Sandros, telling him he found Boba, till a gun forced at his neck behind shuts him up. It's Dengar, having smuggled himself onto board the only working ship in Mos Espa. He forces Trooper to land the ship and holds him captive, bringing him as a gift to Boba and the others. Trooper breaks down, uh, he tearfully reveals his name is Cole, he rambles about how sick of the death and fighting he's constantly forced into. He, he joined the Stormtrooper program as a teenager because he saw it as his patriotic duty to maintain peace and galaxy, only seeing how corrupt the empires for the atrocities he was made to commit. He was on the run following the Battle of Endor and was picked up by Anasandros, needing Larky to bully around and do his bidding. Termite and the other soldiers are actually sympathetic to Cole. They were born to be soldiers, and it's through Palpatine's manipulation of them that they were forced to commit terrible things that allowed the Stormtrooper program to be created. Their eyes, Cole is a fellow soldier, a fellow brother. They've lost enough brothers over the years, they'll cling to whatever is left. Most of his life, Boba tried distancing himself from the other clones, in a way resenting them for taking away what he felt was his special connection to his father. Here, after being nursed to the help of them, he feels guilty for leaving them behind. Hearing the voice of your fathers from strangers was disturbing, one day he grew up and realised that the voice coming from him now. He muses on how despite his attempts to keep them away, Boba and the clones are the same, cast aside men trying to craft their own purpose now. Occasionally cut back to the remaining members of Bastards of Fett, 
their captive Fennec and their annoying winning companion Piloke as they arrive at Nalhusta to visit the twins themselves and D8D's kind of strapped at the back. They're sick of his rambling but they think that he has data that can help them get, get Boba. While the super gross hut twins are at first angry about Boba still being free, they accept Anasandos' gift of Fennec as bait for Boba, conceding that Anasandos has proven himself to have a future with them as a partner. Piloke tries weaseling himself into the twins' good graces, proclaiming that he was a double agent for them the whole time, posing as Boba's right-hand man, which is bullshit of course, but promises he can be of great aid to the hut cartel. And the male hut is like, okay, give it then. Give us your right hand. Prove yourself to us. Okay, nervously gives his hand, and the hut clasps his entire fist around it and crushes the Major Doman's hand like a vice. Uh, the hut says sadistically, like, just wanted to make sure you really are finished with Boba. Your hand only belongs to us now. It's my sister's hand, and I will accept you to be part of our family. Trying to hold in his screaming, Peloke kisses the super slimy hut hand, completing his brutal initiation to them. And Anasandros passed in icy terms. Island still feeling that they went too far, destabilizing Tatooine to wear her father, and Anasandros is now aware of who Island really is, having overheard her talk with Boba, and he's filing away that information for later. He returns to his private apartment on Nal Hutter's moon, Nashadar, and is warmly reunited with his nine-year-old son. This is the peace he found for himself, his own son. This is the peace he is willing to kill for to protect when he learned about Boba's return. His son asks him if the boogeyman is finally dead. Embracing his son tightly, Anasandros is like, Not yet, son, but soon. His heart will be dead soon. I promise. Episode ends with Fennec sent to a cell, and the twins initiating the now emboldened forces to take over Tatooine and to track down the former slaves of Jabba, determined to send a message across the galaxy. Boba, the pretender to the throne, is gone. The huts are taking the rightful place back. Episode 5, Kingdom of Bone. Back in Kamino, Boba is slowly recovering physically, the Kaminoans have, uh, they're crafting replacement flesh for his burnt leg. It itches like hell, but it does the job. He refuses a cybernetic replacement for the eye, though. Mentally, he's still at a real low point, and this time, he has no mask to hide between. Upon hearing Fennec was captive, and realising that Gardan was killed defending him, and believe himself to have once again failed at trying to create a new life outside of bounty hunting, he opts to live himself to the huts in exchange for sparing Tatooine and the huts. Rash and even Dengar have a big heart-to-heart moment with him, uh, just to give a brief summary, Dash reminds Boba of how he brought honour to a planet devoid in it, and Dengar talks about how he learned from Boba that even old warriors who feel obsolete in a changed galaxy can still rise up. Uh, he gets out of his funk and is inspired by his allies and crafts new armour from what remains of his old one and mixes it with clone trooper armour and requests aid of the clone troopers who agree to go back to the fight, this time with their own will and for the right reasons. Boba and Dengar both jokingly suggest that they have a new Kyat's claw on their hands. Dash forces Cole to record a confession regarding the bastard's effects framing Boba for attacking Syndicate Trading, uh, which starts a chain of dominoes of the Syndicates doubting their engagement with the twins. On Nal Hutter, a chained up Fennec is visited by an elderly hut, a great uncle to the twins, and he brought 8D8 with him, who's like, Oh, you want me to torture my former employer? I mean, sure, I'll do it. It might take a little while to overcome my programming. And Hutter's like, No, no, I just want you to translate. She knows you, I want her to understand and trust me. And, and AD8 is like, <sighs> fine. Hut probes Fennec for insight into Boba, not to get tactical insight, but, but to understand Boba as a person. While she concedes that he was not the legend she was hoping to meet as a teenager, her respect for him is immeasurable, feeling that in his eyes, she is a true equal. That together, they could be more than just killers for hires. That even after all these years, Boba can still inspire her to become more. The Hutt feels he understands better now, and concedes that he believes the time of the Hutt criminal empire has reached a decaying state. 
their golden age long gone and that there's no future for the twins. They lack the spine to do the job themselves and force a future where the cartel will ultimately rip itself apart. He seeks to make a deal with Fennec. Should her belief that Bobo will strike back be proven to be true, he will free her in exchange for a seat in Boba's good graces. If there is no sign of Boba, he will allow her execution to continue. Boba and his new Kayat's claw travel to the world Askaji, where Manu and former slaves of Jabba are in hiding, the community's leading member being Yana Gargan, one of Jabba's dancer slaves, the big woman in Return of the Jedi, uh, the one of six breasts. In the EU, her mm. father was a tribal chief on Eskaji, and Jabba took a big liking to her, having her dress up as Jabba's own mother, which, gross, but that's to be expected with Hutts by now. <laughs> it was like, I remember you, you laughed at the death of your fellow slaves, you're no innocent yourself. It's like, place like that, you have to adapt to survive. You didn't exactly save everyone from the Rancor, did you? Boba, she's not a fully redeemed good person, she still has a kind of sadistic streak to her, but she does hold a responsibility to defend her fellow slaves, desperation to not go back to how things used to be. Twins forces arrive, uh, tracking the slaves, but Boba and the new Kyat's claw fend them off. Cole escapes his chains, but actually joins in a fight on Boba's side, having great pity for the slaves, knowing what it is like to run. The twin forces are destroyed, they have, they have attained their ship. Boba recruits those of the slaves who are willing to take the fight to the huts themselves, using their slave trader ships to smuggle themselves into hutter space. Drash and the Tuscan warrior Obs go back to Tatooine to prepare the cities for arrival of Hutt's forces to protect their home. Cole decides to go with them to repay the damage he had a part in and to be on the right side of a battle for once. Boba entrusts Slave 1 to Drash and gives farewell in case this is the last time they see each other. He's never really had much experience in telling people he cares about, how he feels about them, so it kind of comes across as an awkward, stoic farewell, but Drash understands what he's going for and gives him a big hug. Uh, continuing the kind of father-daughter dynamic we were within your pitch. Yep. On Al Hutter, the elderly hut hooks ADA into a network relay to try sending an encrypted message to Boba. At this point, the droid is, more, is like one more day away from self-destructing. He's just tired of this. He's tired of... He just wants to destroy a droid, goddammit. <laughs> Story ends with Boba and Kayat's claw on the ship to Hutter space, and he finishes crafting his new armour. His old battered armour merged with a new lining allows for him to move quicker, and a new reformed and painted Stormtrooper helmet with a retractable visor for his eyes. It's got a kind of Judge Dredd vibe to it now, where we see his jaw. It goes with that uh, Marshall vibe I think the TV show is trying to give him. And now, the final battle for the Crime Empire is about to begin. Bringing us on to Act 3, the last two episodes, Battle for the Throne. Any thoughts for Act 2? I, I'm liking all this... Um... You start out with something very action-heavy, and then your second act is uh, much more introspective, looking at the consequences of that action and what the dominoes that led to that action. Um, I, I'm really liking this, uh, you know, back and forth of uh, sins of the past, meeting, uh, you know, expectations of the future. And uh, how the present, you know, interacts with that. I'm also getting this distinct Western vibe. You know, with Alexandros, you know, uh, being on this hunt for revenge that sort of blinded him, and then he comes back home to his kid, um, and picking up on the EU thing of having uh, Bubba live a normal life, which was very outlaw of uh, outlaw Josie Wales of them. The EU treated Boba Fett as essentially space Clint Eastwood. Um, that. Uh, I'm getting this, the you know, the, the cycles of violence and revenge. A good Western about that kind of thing is going to focus on family and how that revenge just keeps piling on and just is a never-ending cycle until someone says no, enough. 
Uh, but until then, the cycle will just keep being passed down from generation to generation. Um, and so I'm liking this. Um, a very distinct gangster meets Western feel to it. And uh, the second act being more introspective, nice uh, counterbalance to the action-heavy act one. And bringing in the EU stuff uh, with Gordon Dawn and all that was pretty cool. Uh... You know, I, I don't know if they're ever going to talk about that in uh, in our current canon, but that, that was nice to have that back. Uh, Concord Dawn has shown up in the TV show Rebels, so that's something, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's just nice to have that sort of outlaw Josie Wales-style uh, Boba Fett back, you know? Uh, uh, and I, I like this Judge Dredd sort of look of the armor. I, I, I think that's a nice look. Um, and goes with your opening, where it homage the 2012... Yeah, Avengers. I did find that funny. I, I, I considered commenting on it, but I was like, nah, let's leave this for later. <laughs> uh, but no, I'm really liking where you're going, and uh, it's interesting. Lovely to hear. I was worried the gangster western stuff would kind of get buried under all the uh, sci-fi action, so I'm glad that you're still picking up on that. Mm -hmm. On to Act 3, Battle for the Throne. The last two episodes, Episode 6, Ties That Choke. Open the ship enter Null Hutter's system, and receive signal from 8D8, informing them of the current whereabouts of the big players. Anik, sister of the twins on Null Hutter, and Anasandros, Island, and the brother Hut on Nar Shadar, the smuggler's moon. Next broadcasted execution is 20 minutes away. Some big members of fellow syndicates have been invited to witness the event at a party on the moon as a sign of strength from the twins. But the syndicates themselves are awaiting an opportunity to join either side to, to see which one's the strongest, or see a potential moment to launch their own coup. There was a massive acid rain shower set to commence. Uh, centuries of polluted build-up rain uh, had mm. ruined the planet's atmosphere. But there was a defense barrier set in place, a great rotating protective shield set to follow the rain to prevent the worst of the damage. Uh, and while I haven't written this down myself, you could throw in a reference to your engineer character from Smuggler's Moon. Well, like maybe that was part of his invention. I just thought maybe that was a cute little reference to Smuggler's Moon, but that's yeah. not too essential. Under Boba's orders, AD-8 hacks Narshadar's broadcast system to release the recorded footage of Jabba the Hutt's embarrassing death at Leia's hands uh, all across the moon. Soon a good portion of the planet are laughing, finally seeing how vulnerable the Hutts actually are, and that the myth mythology that the Hutts try to build around Jabba's death was just bullshit. Uh, seeing this as a signal that they've been waiting for, the elderly Hutt and Fennec hatch an escape plan. She escapes through the sewer system, uh, and when the sister Hutt sees her again, she's like, God, you look hideous, where the hell did you come from? And Fennec's like, is where I'm going to put your head when I'm done with it. Anasandros figures that the returning ship with the so-called recaptured slaves is a trap, and sends orders for it to be destroyed. Seeing it best to split up to trick the missile and tackle the threats on both Nalhutta and Nashadar, uh, Boba and Dengar launch down to Smuggler's Moon in a detachment secondary pod, while the rest of the ship crashes into the heart of the Hut Empire, with Termite and his clone brothers leading the armed former slaves into charge on the palace. This inspires a good portion of the long-tormented guards and slaves of the twins and the rest of the Hut cartel to revolt from the inside of the palace and join in on the attack, activating security to let Termite squad infiltrate the head palace. Fennec and the attacking squad are worried the palace will activate its droids to defend them, but the Elder Hut is like, don't worry, I sent a friend of ours to deal with it. We cut to ADA in the middle of a robotic carnage, having hacked all the droids to pieces before they reactivated, and is laughing like an absolute madman. Let's give uh, Matt Berry something to chew on, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> a hangar bay, the female hut twin, is trying to escape in a walkway as the guards with a battle tank roll out below her to intercept the attacking rebels. Fennec easily catches up and calculates the best way to take out as many fetches as he can in one move. 
He fires a rope line around the hut's massive waist and dangles the other line of rope over a pipe on the roof and down to the bay below, shaped like a noose to try to catch hold of anything moving down below. And wouldn't you know it, come running blindly in is a certain former major domo, Piloque. His neck is caught in a loop. As he looks up in confusion, he sees Fennec high above, such coyly smiling and waving at him. You see the colour drain from his face as he realises what the other end of the rope is, and just has time to go, oh, before Fennec kicks the hut off the walkway. Piloque's neck immediately snap as his body shoots up in the air as the hut comes plummeting down screaming. Piloque's body smashes into the ceiling as the rope goes violently taunt and the hut is left swinging right into the path of her own battle tank, smashing right into it, causing it to tip over and the missiles inside to fall out and detonate, the blast burning everyone down there. The last we see of Sister Hut is just a melting pile of fats. <laughs> and that is the brutal death scene of Major Domo I had from the very beginning. <laughs> I don't think Disney will be too keen on me doing an idea, but that's the kind of elaborate death scene I would just love to do for a story like this. Just take out the most annoying character in the most hardcore way possible. <laughs> After a fierce battle with Termite's brothers dying, along with several former slaves, now Hutter Palace is fully taken over. Mike breaks down into tears of joy, feeling he, he and his fallen brothers have accomplished a mission of redemption. Uh, the elderly hut is, uh, is put in place now, making a deal with Fennec, providing Boba can accomplish his own mission on the moon to take out the remaining brother. On the moon, uh, knowing Boba is coming, Anasandros betrays Eileen, holding a captive to hold a bargaining chip for his final rematch with his boogeyman. On to the finale, episode 7, Shattered Chains. At what was supposed to be a party heralding the rise of the twins' power, Boba and Dengar engage Brother Hut in direct combat as he wears an ancient Hut combat armor with spider legs that gives him mobility. Uh, this is influenced by a recent comic from the High Republic series where the old Hut had this cool kind of battle armor and actually got to fight a Jedi for a bit. We're used to seeing Huts as these slow, near pointless things. Yeah, apparently they got their massive empire by having great physical strength, so I wanted to actually show that here. Uh, it's an immense fight, but working together, to, the two former hunters break the Brother's armor. Uh, Dengar's arm is broken during the process. Boba holds off from killing the hut though, instead he demands the attention of the invited syndicate members, putting the choice of who they will follow in their hands, a choice that wasn't given to syndicates by the huts. Uh, they are to choose who between Boba and the twin has earned the right through the trial of pain and blood to take the throne. A fat worm that has coasted through life by the name of its family, or a warrior who has brought down empires with own hands and will now use that power to forge an even stronger one. It's a unanimous vote, they all vote for the brother's death, and in turn, they stab the crying, flaying about Hut to death. So, they take him out gangster style. Receiving a taunting message from Anasandros, and with Dengar's blessing, as well as a gift of his flame sword, Boba sets off alone to rescue his daughter. Uh, now, what's funny about this is I knew from the get-go of this pitch that I wanted to give Boba a kind of flaming sword to live up to the title Scorched mm. Chapter. Uh, and it was through doing research on Dengar, I found out he had an actual flame sword. So I was like, oh, this is perfect synergy. He can just... Although this is a nice moment between Dengar, this kind of, we're, we're brothers once again, we're back to the old days of Kyat's Claw, here's my weapon, you go rescue your daughter. They're reunited, she tells him that Anasandros has a son in the city, and they briefly talk about her mother, Sintas. How she blamed him for her death, how he ought to create a new legacy with people like Trenek and Drash without her. Boba expresses his guilt for taking the easy road out, saying if he knew about her, he would have done more to keep her in life. You know, he talks about how... When he grew up, he didn't have any positive role models in his life. He was abandoned by his father. He didn't want to put that same abandonment on anyone else. And, he's, you know, 
they still resent each other what they've done. You know, she she put a horrible injury on him, but he can understand that her heart was a was in a misguided, fueled by revenge place. Anasandros, being a dick he is, intrudes upon the somewhat tender moment, and we begin the final, the fierce rematch to end all rematches. Battle takes place across various districts of the mega city, flying above with jetpacks during the acid rainstorm. Uh, Anasandros looks to be taking the lead till Eileen joins in the fight, this time on her father's side. She doesn't forgive him, but she now has more reason to hate Anasandros. Together, they wear him out and take the fight to the part of the city where Anasandros' son is. Uh, the sight of his terrified son throws him off balance. Eileen uses his own jetpack as a weapon, uh, hitting Anasandros with it, knocking off the helmet that used to be Boba's. Boba manoeuvres Anasandros and tricks him into stepping outside of the protective barrier's shadow and gets caught in an acid vein that hideously burns at the top part of his head. And Boba uses the distraction to overwhelm him in hand-to-hand combat. Boba is about to decapitate the defeated Anasandros with a scorched sword, very similar to what Mace Windu did to his own father, but holds up at the last moment. Realising if he does this, he'll have done exactly what Mace Windu did to him, what he did to Anasandros, mercilessly killing a boy's father in front of him, and create another orphan seeking revenge, fueled by hatred, and the cycle will begin again. Boba relents, deciding to end the cycle, sparing Anasandros' life, imprisoning him, uh, promising that his son will be looked after. Boba's helmet is recovered, Boba's badly damaged during a fight with the acid vein, and Boba's own attacks. Despite it being such a key part of his life and his father's legacy, uh, Boba accepts its destruction. It was the mark of Boba Fett the bounty hunter. That man, the bogeyman that Anasandros felt was chasing him, has been gone for a while. It's time the rest of the galaxy saw that for themselves. As the son is being sent away, Boba meets with him. Now, in the Clone Wars, uh, during the second season, there's an arc where Boba tries to get his revenge on Mace Windu as a kid. And at the end of the arc, the final scene is Boba and Mace Windu briefly talking. It has Boba admitting that he has done terrible things to get that revenge. He regrets it, but he will never forgive Windu for killing his father. And Mace Windu, being the worst Jedi ever, it just coldly goes, well, <laughs> you're going to have to. So my idea with the grown-up Boba and the Alessandro's son is to parallel that scene from Clone Wars. With the son angrily declaring that he will never forgive Boba, and Boba, who knows what the kid is going through, and unlike Windu, can actually empathise what that feeling is like, he says, understand, i asking you to forgive me, I want you to live with your life, but as your father, we both want you to grow to understand what really happened today. When you're ready, we'll meet again. We can talk, or we can fight. Either way, I'll be waiting for you. Eileen, who is just tired of the whole thing, tired of the anger she has felt her whole life, just wants to leave and have nothing to do with Boba anymore. But he wants to try to start the long road to patching up the relationship with his daughter and says that when she is ready, they too should meet again someday and gifts her and his and Django's book, passing on their family history to her. She's like, why? You want me to be like you? And Boba's like, no, you're going to be better. They separate with a firm handshake. It's not a particularly loving departure, but it means a lot to Boba. It took him all this time, but he finally touched his moonlight. With that, she departs, leaving the system and pointing where to go next now, she, now that she is free of this vendetta that drove her. Boba and Dengar join the others on Nalhutta, and Fennec and Boba have a warm reunion as two people who sought off to cut friendships out of their lives reunited with, even though they won't say it themselves, their best friend, their equal. They explore the ruins of the palace. Fennec is like, huh, the body of Pinocchio has gone. That's weird. He, he must be dead. I don't know where it could have gone. 88, covered in divine up blood, walks on by and is like, I wouldn't worry about it, mistress. If you'll excuse me, I need to recharge alone in my chambers for several hours. 
don't disturb me. His orders were not to kill Ploke. There's nothing to stop him having fun with what remains. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, dark humour. I don't think Disney will let me go that far. But fuck it, this is our podcast. I can do what I want. <laughs> uh, they receive a call from Tatooine and see that Drash, Cole and the Tuscans have succeeded in allowing the people of Mos Espa to hold off the twin forces uh, with Mos Espa and the Tuscan tribe having joined forces. Is it cheating to have this big battle happen technically off screen? Yeah, probably. Would it make for a cool time book or comic exploring what happened in battle? Hypothetically, yeah, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, besides, I don't think the budget will allow me to share a separate battle happening at the same time as the Hut and Anasandros stuff. Uh, we jump forward a couple mm-hmm. of weeks and Boba's empire has been given a massive expansion now that he has finally taken over the Hut cartel. Now a true burgeoning empire. He spread his trusted inner circle across the systems to ensure better control. Giving them their own fair share of power instead of holding them down like the Hut cartel did with their partners. Anik takes the seat in hut space. Most of the slaves are now free of their implants and are now free to pursue a full life. Some have decided to stay with Fennec. She inspired them, much like Boba inspired her long ago, and now they're trying to join her as members of her own hit squads. Drash takes Tatooine, now head of the crime families there, completing Boba's mission of establishing proper communion with the Tuscan tribes, and she ta- she's taken what remains of Jabba's palace and has remodeled it be a kind of punky club with Cole as her right-hand man. He's now find his right side. As for Boba, he's back on the planet where it began, using his resources to ensure the rebuildings of Kamino's cities. First slave is now the king of the machine that created him, making it the heart of his empire. Making his long estranged brothers like Termite and longtime rival Dengar the loyal muscle. And unlike the many crime bosses he has worked for in the past, Boba knows how to reward loyalty and hard work. The throne has been secured, and the future is Boba's. Now where shall he take it? Uh, that's the end of series two. As a quick little fun post credit scene, it's not too important, uh, but I thought it'd be a fun little hook. The post credit scene is Boba and Dengar awaiting a new Republic representative, someone that they're familiar with. Uh, they have banter about wanting to wrap this up quickly. Dengar's wedding is the next day. He wants to get there quickly as he can. It's hinted at Boba will be best man, like in the uh, Legends books. Boba's trying to calm Dengar down, like, look, I know you want to kill him, but we need to hear him out first. Then maybe, yes maybe, we pan up to the pouring rain skies of Camino, and coming descending down from orbit is the Millennium Falcon. And that's done. That's a possible Han Solo Boba rematch tease for Series 3. Uh, I think Series 3 could be explore Boba's connection to Mandalore. And that's it. That's that's your Disney Plus subscription done for the time. <laughs> that was fantastic. Um... It's the show I wanted in the first place. You you got lucky that you were able to go in your own way. Because of the rules we'd established prior, I was really stuck with the digital outline of the yeah. original. So I had to rein in a lot of my ideas, and I got it in a place that I actually quite liked. You gave me a beautiful jumping off point by teasing stuff like Dengar, mm. by uh, changing the huts, you know, in a, rigid, in a series that they're for two episodes, then they just vanished, not even main villains. In your pitch, you let them kind of build up in the shadows, which let me have more fun with them here. Mm-hmm. And you had more juicy themes and more juicy character connections to each other, so that allowed me to jump on board here and have a lot of fun. I'm glad that you seem to mm-hmm. like this direction. I was worried it would go in a more action direction than you were thinking for with your Godfather in space pitch. But I went over it several times, adding elements where I could to hype up the, the crime family aspect. So there'd be stuff like the uh, yeah. fake... The, the assassination attempt in the first episode, there would be the syndicates having that brutal murder of the Hut brother. So stuff like that, I hope, would kind of 
tie things back into that initial like core aspect. Yeah. Like I I did notice that it was far more it's definitely far more action even I would have went. But um you got this this nice blend of western meets gangster action style that it it honestly feels like Boba Fett is John Wick. And I I enjoy John Wick films for a few reasons and uh watching them is tiring because of the sure insane amount of fight scenes but the the world they build is interesting enough to keep me hooked and so you've you've done the same thing where there's a lot of action but it's also like there's this interesting world building going on there's a uh, good character work here enough to really bite into so so that the action doesn't drag on it's definitely it's in many ways it's similar to the way i would have went but also different at the same time like my hypothetical would have been the war of the bounty hunters dengar and a few other bounty hunters would have showed up uh it would have been set on tatooine the, it would have ended with the huts being killed i was actually going uh, the, the major domo character uh i uh, was actually like set up to potentially be a reoccurring character uh you giving him a name and then killing him was pretty funny and giving matt berry's droid some stuff to do we got we we love we love matt berry in this podcast yeah we do <laughs> uh you know yeah you, you had a lot of really good ideas uh what, what the way you set it up were like uh, he's basically taken over what remains of the cartel now, and so, like, he he's relegated it. So, um, you know, he's got a viceroy here and a viceroy there, and give, giving that to the various other characters, Drash and, and Fennec and, and so forth, and, and tying in all the EU stuff with him and Dengar was really nice. That was my plan as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, the very interesting stuff, and I, I like how this all ties back into my random trying to find an in for Fiddick to make sense in my head, all the way back when and going, and I, I, I remember I texted you, uh, when we were doing that episode, I was like, do you mind if I try and expand Fiddick as a character? And you were like, yeah, sure, whatever. Well, I don't think we talked about this last time, but she did appear, uh, in series one of Bad Batch. She was sent like to capture Omega, like who's kind of actually while we're talking about Omega, uh, I did contemplate including her in this story because she is essentially Boba's sister. Uh, she was the last clone made of Camino, mm -hmm. and she's like a pure clone, like Boba, so she like ages naturally. I was tempted to include her, but I decided to hold off because I felt like there was enough stuff going on with I thought Eileen would be more interesting aspect to bring in. Mm -hmm. Ad Batch is a show where it's it's at its best when the main characters aren't in it. It's it works best when it's exploring the aftermath of this what happens to the clone troopers, which is an element I tried to introduce here. But and it's at its worst when the main characters are just going on adventure of the week type stuff, very generic dialogue. So it's a it's an odd show. I, I relented on mm. including Omega. Uh, I I'm hoping Boba Fett will show up in like series three of Bad Batch because I, I think there's such juicy potential there. Him having a sister. For now, I yeah. think having a daughter would be interesting. You've got the kind of father-daughter dynamic with Drash. Uh, that's, so that's why I had that kind of scene of Ellen being like kind of sadistic towards Drash. Like, you think you're his daughter? Mm -hmm. What happened to me? He's going to abandon you. Uh, you're a parasite. You shouldn't take this mm -hmm. role. But anyways, back to Fennec Shan. So since in your pitch, uh, she was inspired by Boba. And then Bad Batch, she's already a bounty hunter by the time the Empire's taken over. I kind of had to fit in where... The t it would make most sense timeline-wise to fit both those aspects. I felt like just uh, two years, a year or so ahead of 
advisor being on par would make sense. I would give Fennec time to kind of be inspired by Boba and kind of rise up in the ranks. The bounty hunters to be sent that mission to capture Omega. Uh, she actually has a fight with Cad Bane mm. at one point. That was Cad Bane's return uh, before Book of Boba Fett. Interesting. Which the show didn't really acknowledge. And I, I meant to acknowledge it on for our episode, but then I forgot. So again, it, it doesn't really add <laughs> up to much either way. Yeah. I, I remember when I was trying to come up with the thing for Finnick, I was trying to come up with something for, to give her more character, to give her more reason to join Boba. And I just kind of set it on a nebulous time of before. Because I don't think they've set Finnick's age, but McNaughton's in her 50s. And I'm like, do, do, do you take that at face value? Because actors don't always play characters their age. Um, famously, uh, Picard uh, was far older than Patrick Stewart ever was. Um, you know, uh, so what exactly do you do? And, and so I just, I just had a nebulous before time. And so you've picked up on that, expanded on that. And to think that pretty much this entire pitch hinges on my random thought one day while trying to like go okay how do i make finnick more interesting and give her a reason and going okay we got a major we, we, we got like sort of like this a uh, robber baron character what if her planet was ruled by a robber baron and boba fett killed him okay and it was like a paragraph and then we were done and it, it you know it helped her character make more sense to me and your entire pitch picks up on that. I just think is really yeah. funny, in a way, because it was it was literally something done out of like, what do I do with this character? I got fucking nothing. Yeah, well, I knew I knew from the get go that I wanted the opening scene of my story to be a cool action sequence, but in disguise be the origin stories of the main villain. And it was only later on when I re-listened to your pitch, mm. I was like, oh, there's actually juicy potential here to bring Fennec into it, so she has a personal connection. Uh, you you have you make this one night just this major turning point in the three main characters' lives. Uh, is it a bit contrived? Possibly. Would would it be a cool thing? <laughs> yeah, I like to think so. Yeah, it's always a it's always a thin line for uh, contrived in or, or not. And uh, I I like to take a I like to take the general idea that life is so messy and things happen all the time and everybody is the own main character of their own story. That it's not contrived if everything happens on the same day, as long as they aren't intrinsically connected. Uh, so you know the fact that you know he killed, uh, you know he killed the the robber baron mayor who which uh, whose son witnessed it, that Finnick witnessed it, and then met his future wife basically. You know in the span of that one night, it's not all connected to the same thing. It happened on the same night on the same planet and is tangentially all connected to the contract he had on the robber baron but it's not like it's not all them meeting at one central place you know like the give, give an example you know uh star trek 2009 kirk kirk is thrown off the enterprise and he magically ends up on the planet that spock from the original series timeline is on and it's just the most convenient thing possible for the plot to happen that ends up making your eyes roll but something like this where it's a bit more happenstance a bit more chaotic like life is you know i can buy it you know it's it's the it's the deadwood thing of having you know this magical moment of the the first bike ride you know after such a tragedy lead to the death of seth's son and you know that all spirals out of the same event 
is in a way is a way to you know overcome the grief of season one of the death of Wild Bill Hitchcock, but that's you know it doesn't feel contrived. It feels natural that this is the way life flows. When there's happiness, tragedy is just around the corner. Well, I'm a sucker for parallels and symbolism, so this seems such a juicy opportunity. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted Anna Sandros to be kind of a dark parallel to Boba. He was raised from good innings, you know, wealthy for all the wrong reasons. Like Boba, his father was ruthlessly torn apart from him. It drove him to become better, become his idea of a warrior. Uh, he, like Boba, he tried to find peace. He got his own son. Uh, but then the news of Boba is a sense of spiraling back into that cycle of vengeance. And he's dragging poor Cole mm. with him. He, Cole wants nothing to do with it. He he has no real beef against Boba. But Anasandos is like, oh no, but stormtroopers were made because of Boba's father. So you two are connected. And Cole's like, not really. I just want to go home, man. But it's like, I have no home. I'm on the run. I have nowhere else to go. So I'll, I'll join you in this mm. bullshit crusade. Oh, you want me to wear that armor? That's weird maybe offensive but sure i guess yeah you know having one of the the bastards you know uh turncoat and then eventually another one turncoat uh but begrudgingly turncoat you know helps symbolize the, the toxic nature of hatred as an emotion and a revenge as an extension of that i'm a sucker for a good revenge story especially when it ends with the revenge being unfulfilled I know some people hate that, you know, if you set out to kill someone, you better end the, 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 the story with them being dead. I think it's far more satisfying when we end on what I think is the both the most optimistic and the most bleak ending, which is everyone lost, no one died, nothing happened, and everybody's just more miserable. It's happened in that mentality of someone hurt me a long time ago, now I can hurt whoever I want. You, know, you go too far yeah. when you're going down that path. It, it, it's an endless cycle. Uh, and the only way to stop that cycle is for someone to say, no, enough. And so that that was cool to see that and how that progresses Boba's character. That I was, because if you remember, uh, I'm, I'm sure this was the parallel you were thinking of, but you didn't call out on it. Like, uh, Drash killed the uh, Rancor trainer who killed her friend from the mods. And I had I had a scene in my rewrite where he talks about that I understand the impulse for revenge. I get it. But sometimes you just need to move on. Because that that's, you know, it's not healthy. It's going to hurt your career. It's going to hurt you as a person. It's like, I get it. If I was given Mace Windu right now, I'd shoot him. I understand. But sometimes you need to just learn to move on. And so that, that ties into my general idea with try because the the original show uh tried to soften him too quickly what i wanted was someone who is a criminal who's a bad person who is legitimately a horrible person but he's the the mafioso type of criminality which is you know he has a sense of honor it's twisted but it's a sense of honor you know um you think of all like the classic gangsters like famously Al Capone set up soup kitchens and said that the stock market they would end in tragedy, and he was right. And he advised all his people to not invest in stock, and uh, which eventually happened in you know 1929 stock market crash, which led to the Great Depression. And so, like you know, he had a sense of honor. He was fucked up, and he was a horrible, horrible human being. You know, look up the Saint Valentine's Day massacre, but he still had a sense of honor, as fucked up as that is. And that's, that was the angle I went with Boba, and I think you've picked up on that really nicely. Well, thank you. This was a fantastic deal. Like I said, it was different from what I would have done, 
but yes, it's great. Yeah, I like when we do that, when we have interesting parallels, mm-hmm. different takes at the same time. Uh, so again, yours was a nice breezy mini story, and mine was a massive epic. But I think I, I like I like to think we both picked up on the other's first pitch very nicely. I think we took the initial core concepts and themes, and I think we ran. Yeah. I think we equally ran of them. At one point, one of my ideas was to pitch like a, a comic book spinoff of one of your stuff, and I was like, "Nah, that'd be too long. I'm just gonna do like an episode, just get one episode, and then you cover here's the whole season." I'm gonna torture my vocal cords doing this episode. <laughs> I, I was trying to be kind. I, I guess in that's parallels because my life is strange pitch was quite long and yours was far shorter. And so this nice balances it out. Thank you listeners for joining us for this season. We will be back in about two to three months time uh, with, with a new season. Uh, just to give you a taste of what's going to happen. Our very first opener of that, of that season is going to be the uh, franchise Doctor Who. My whole life has been building up to that moment to talk about hours about my take on Doctor Who. When he did his rewrite of Flux, he talked about how that was his favorite thing ever. Um, and I'm I'm pretty uh, pretty into Doctor Who, not as much as he is by far. Um, but we also have very different tastes. So when we do come back, it, it's going to be another five episode season. Season opener is Doctor Who. Season finale is Pitch on a Pitch. You know, we'll see you in two to three months time. Tell them bye. Thank you for joining us on this adventure.